Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode five of Movie Mumble, the monthly movie exploration and discussion podcast where we seek to broaden our cinematic horizons. I'm your host, Scott Murray, and today I'm joined by my towering friends, Joel Lewis. Hi there. And Tim Gerard. <laughs> Hello. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe Tim's not so towering. No. <laughs> eh. Little legs. For those of you unfamiliar with Movie Mumble, it is a monthly podcast where we get together, watch a film, and then talk about it. The goal is to introduce ourselves to new films, genres, styles, and themes. We each take turns picking a film to watch, whether it's one we already know and love or something completely new and unfamiliar. Then watch it together in the hope that we find unexpected new joys along the way. There aren't really any rules regarding what films we can pick. They can be foreign or domestic, live action or animated, new or old, famous or obscure, anything at all. After we've watched each movie... We talk about it and see where that leads us, whether it's discussing the film's context and production, talking about our own personal movie memories, or something else altogether. At the end of each podcast, we will announce what we're watching next month, so you can sort of watch along with us if you'd like. Keep in mind, we will not withhold spoilers for any of the films we talk about, so if you're worried about that sort of thing, you'd better watch it before you listen to this podcast. This month, I was our movie selector, and I picked Shin Godzilla, the most recent Godzilla film, and the first one out of Japan and Toho in quite a while. Uh, Yes, Japanese Godzilla, not the Bryan Cranston one you all may remember from a few years ago. (laughs) That's its own discussion. I I mean, I know, just that one was more publicized in the U.S., Mm -hmm. I don't want there to be any mix-ups. We're also doing our new thing this cycle, where we flip a coin and decide which of the two people who didn't pick a movie will describe it. <laughs> Joel has also graciously provided us with a gorgeous coin. You may have heard it in the last episode. It makes a wonderful sound. <laughs> and uh, That's half the reason we do the coin I mean, toss. Yeah, what, what more reason do you need? It's the one sound effect we have. <laughs> last month, Tim, you called it in the air, so I think this month we'll have Joel call it. Okay. And then after that meme, we can cycle through that way if that's all right. Yeah, that's fine. I'll set my laptop aside for a moment. Are you gentlemen? Heads. I fumbled that toss. I do apologize. That's all right. I fumbled that horribly. Here we go. I'm going to do that again. For real this. Oh, nope. heads I again. Can't. Didn't work. My, I'm not. Okay. Last one. Heads. There we go. And it is heads. Joel, who's going to be describing... I can see the conflict in his face. I don't know because I, I really I feel like you want. To. I really do, but I also want to hear you talk about it because it's another kind of convoluted cavalcade of climactic incidents. <laughs> I'm sorry, my alliteration got away from me. I'll 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 describe the plot. Mm-hmm. Okay. First of all, I need to describe this film as the best Godzilla film I've seen. Wow. And oh, wow. That's a yeah, glowing, glowing recommendation coming from Joel. Yeah. So we'll, I'll, I'll get into my history with the franchise a little later on, but we'll, we'll try and, and go through the plot here. Okay. Um, so Godzilla shows up, um, but he's not the Godzilla that we've come to know and love from uh, movie posters. He's okay. kind of googly-eyed, <laughs> and he's described as kind of a uh, lungfish-type organism that's kind of just dragging himself across the uh, Japanese um, coastline um, into more and more populated areas, and kind of it, it's a lesser-evolved form of Godzilla before we get the... Uh, tyrannical monster that we've come to know and love over the years um so it shows up and we get a lot of men in conference rooms with clipboards (laughs) and 
just a lot of parliamentary procedure and bureaucracy about how do we deal with a, a crisis of this magnitude. It does and take it, place in Japan. I, I'm sorry, I did say it was the Japanese Godzilla, but again, since the last one took place everywhere but. Yeah. <laughs> all right, just want to clarify. Yeah. Tokyo, yes. Sorry, Joel, please. No, that's all right. And then, so what happens is um, <laughs> every single decision has to go through seven layers of bureaucracy and the prime minister has to make every final decision. And there's a very great, uh, um, he's like the assistant or key advisor who's constantly saying, we need a decision now. Mm-hmm. We need a decision now. Mm-hmm. We, need to, we get great shots so of the, the prime minister. must be yours. <laughs> <laughs> and the prime minister has these great shots of really contemplating what needs to happen. And I mean, it's it's kind of comic the 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 um, redundancy of it all, but th- that's how decisions get made, and that's something I really liked about the film. Anyway, so Godzilla shows up. He's this lungfish type creature, googly eyed. You get the, you can see the classic spines on his back. He's got the massive tail, which we'll probably talk about a lot, um, and he's just kind of crawling his way through the city. Um, and let me see if I can consult my notes here. Um, we were supposed to be taking notes. Oh, no. <laughs> How many times have you said that now? Because usually I'm the one taking notes. And then you say, wait, I was supposed to be taking notes? But tonight is Joel. So I don't know what this test is on. <laughs> so there's a number of different things that they have to talk about with the idea of militarizing and making it a uh, military ex- uh, um, exercise, trying to deter the monster because it would be the first time that it would be a war-ready Japan post-World War II. So this is a continuity where they've never seen a kaiju before. Um, so it's it's a huge precedent about arming a, a nation against uh, uh, an aggressor that's n- not a sovereign nation, that's not a cataclysmic um, force of nature like a, a, a typhoon or a, a hurricane. Um, so there's there's a lot of like, how do we define it? What do we do in trying to get information about it? Um, there's a number of different side plots. Some of them are kind of like, Petty political machinations of uh, lower-level guys, which was really interesting. Um, there's also a uh, the U.S. has a, a pretty big, well, I mean, big. Their involvement visible, visible. It's a it's a visible involvement mm-hmm. with the U.S. There is a specific agent from uh, the U.S. who is Japanese descended, who kind of brings um, this side plot of there was a. Um, professor in Japan who was aware of the uh, uh, nuclear waste dumping which led to Godzilla's creation and he kind of did some research and found out um, that basically Godzilla was a life form that existed um, that was feeding off the nuclear waste that was dumped in a specific area and basically became this biological nuclear reactor so it has gills that act as kind of uh, the ventilation system, and then its blood is the cooling system for this nuclear reactor organism. And as it moves through different environments, it adapts and can evolve based on its surroundings, which is really, really cool. Um, So it it goes through, like, it's in this lungfish stage, and it crawls through, and there's great shots, great destruction. Like I said, the, the first time you see Godzilla head on he's kind of googly eyed it kind of looks unfinished and that, that I mean that's the point because it's this earlier evolved form it goes through this section and then um, it's pushing up against things there's some great 
shots of um, it going up a, a little channel and sailboats and uh, speedboats just being pushed down this channel down the main thoroughfares. Um, and then it, it gets to this point where it can stand upright and um, it, it's kind of growing into more Godzilla-like. And then it goes into a period of remission. So it has to go underwater and it reassesses the environment and evolves off screen. During this period, we see uh, another um, flurry of conference room meetings. We get a really great, um, uh, so one of the smaller, uh, like, um, political um, advisors who's kind of moving it towards, because it was unclear whether it was a, uh, a natural disaster, a uh, underwater volcanic eruption, or a, um, an actual organism. One of the, the advisors claimed it was an organism and wanted to act a certain way from the very beginning. He becomes the main protagonist of the film. Um, he assembles this ragtag group of kind of freaks and geeks, these guys that are kind of on the fringe and they've got um, all these weird ideas about how to go about defeating Godzilla. Um, so they come up with a plan, and it's it's kind of the plan they stick with throughout the whole thing, and it takes a long time to develop. Uh, once they discover that Godzilla is this biological nuclear reactor, they want to try and find a way to cool his blood to a point where nuclear reactions can no longer happen. So they develop a formula for a coagulant to introduce into his bloodstream to um, basically freeze him in place. And there's logistics. They, they uh, discover this, the professor that had... Um, done the research and kind of left it out to be discovered, um, knowing it was going to be a threat to Tokyo. Um, he developed, or he, he showed kind of the DNA inner workings of how Godzilla made these nuclear reactions happen within himself, and it's this big laid out thing, and it, they spend most of the movie trying to figure out what method is in that madness, and they discover <laughs> that the way to defeat Godzilla is through origami. So they take this road map of the, the genetic material or how um, Godzilla processes material and fold it into different shapes and it, it starts to make sense to them. And they find out through that that the coagulation um, method is plausible and could work. Um, while they're doing that, military is brought in and we see a lot of stuff thrown at Godzilla in this movie. And so much. This is the mobilization of every ounce of military power that modern day Japan can bring to bear. And it's so ineffective. It does not make a dent. And I've never felt so hopeless watching a Godzilla movie on behalf of humanity. I was like, what the fuck are they going to do? <laughs> and that was before we get to see Godzilla's uh, uh, atomic breath. So before that, they throw. Uh, light machine guns, heavy machine guns, um, thirty millimeter cannon, and then rockets, missiles, missiles from their uh, helicopters to no effect. Then they bring in bombs their, from the F twos. Yep, the Japanese, the JSDF's uh, attack, ground attack aircraft, basically. and then they strafe them with tank fire and artillery and, and missiles to and no effect. Uh-huh. And every single one of the, he walks straight through. There's no physical evidence of any damage being taken by him. They just bounce off. And then the USA comes to the rescue with fire and fury. And we get stealth bombers that were... Um, so I, a little preface of this. They, the U.S. has been this heavily um, influential part of the movie, kind of sanctioning 
towards heavy force trying to get Japan to do things a certain way. Um, and as we see all of the artillery from the uh, Japanese military be ineffectual, we see a number of blatantly Caucasian actors leave the war room. Um, as uh, we've discovered a few moments later, there are stealth bombers in um, route, so they knew they were coming. Nobody else knew they were coming. So they come and they drop some heavy-duty shit. And I, wa- I can't quite remember what it was, Scott. Did Massive you? Ordnance Penetrator. Okay. And uh, boy, did they penetrate. That's my nickname in undergrad. 30,000-pound <laughs> <laughs> 30, bunker buster. And these are the first things... These are the first things that we see really make an impact on Godzilla. They cut into his back. You see this cascade of blood. And you really see, okay, this, this might be... It. I'm, I'm, at this point, I'm so engrossed in the movie. I don't know how long we've been. I don't know how much there's left. I'm just totally immersed in it. It's like, oh, is this how just USA comes in to save the day? Thank God that's not the case. Because Godzilla responds to this torrent of fire with the most spectacular, devastating atomic breath I've ever seen in my life. It was outstanding. Just hellfire. De- devastating the whole of Tokyo. And I, 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 I was slack-jawed. I was speechless. I, I looked. I, I was sitting at the edge of my seat with my mouth open and covering my mouth. I, I, I it was spectacular and terrifying. And I, I, I wrote down, "What the fuck are they going to do now?" That, that's the end. There's no coming back from this. It's, it's devastating. And they show and after, I mean, this is a point where he's gotten into Tokyo, lights have gone off, it's this, he's he's in his fully formed how we know him from previous movies and he's glowing against the blackout city he gets hit and he just decimates the cityscape. And in the aftermath of that, there's some shots of just the after he kind of explodes with this atomic breath, um, they uh, he, he kind of has to power down because he, he's exhausted all of his energy. Um, and there's just a shot of... He, he's kind of inert in one place and everybody's evacuated. And it's just this blazing gash of carnage across the cityscape. And it was... Amazing! I, I, I'm <laughs> I'm find, finding no shortage of words for describing this sequence. It, it was just incredible. And I, I mean, I, I just forgot one of my favorite parts. We see something that Godzilla's never done. After he uses the atomic breath, he engages the spines on his back in laser points and just decimates everything above him. You know, I mean, the energy's got to come out somewhere. So just by closing its mouth, it it's sort of focused it out of a different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And oh man. Just ah, uh, it's everything I wanted this movie to be, <laughs> and I was quite excited to see this one. So there's a bot- bunch of hype. Um, so that happens. Then uh, the UN and the US um, kind of sanction nuclear deterrent. They're going to drop a warhead on Godzilla and basically destroy Tokyo. Um, it, it would be a, a nuclear bomb with a yield. Was it 200 times I don't that? Remember of what the megaton was? But it, I mean. The UN basically just steps in and says, we can't let this go any farther. we got to nip it in the bud here. And we're just going to bring to bear the most powerful weaponry humanity 
has ever created. And throughout the course of uh, Godzilla's atomic breath destruction, all of the uh, higher level cabinet and the PM is murdered, um, elevating the uh, uh, Minister for Agriculture to the position of PM. And it's kind of, uh, as he comes up, we kind of get a little bit of the political uh, dialogue about why is this guy here? It's not going to be very effective. He actually turns out to be very thoughtful and measured PM. Yeah, there's and a great little discussion about why did they make the agriculture guy the prime minister and about, oh, well, no one wants to be prime minister. Right. They're sort of expecting failure. Right. So they pick someone who it sort of would really matter. And he ends up making, he, he, he um, engages with the UN and agrees to this nuclear option, but he also is persuaded by our um, lower level um, pro- protagonist. Um, about letting the um, coagulation, the, the um, ragtag team's plan kind of continue and stalling out um, the um, UN nuclear option, trying to find a way to implement this coagulation plan um, so that Japan can own the solution, that they're not being imposed on by this outside force. And they end up developing or finding the uh, origami method of figuring out how it works um, end up engage or uh, implementing a lot of the um, private sector fabrications facilities to produce the liquid that they end up using um, and they finally get everything together and as they come in to attack Godzilla it's this great four-tiered plan where okay, Godzilla's been inert they send in bullet trains with bombs that upsets the balance and Godzilla starts to move and he's reacting to uh, fire from below. Then, um, I, I wrote this down, let me make sure I have... Okay, so attack with the trains from below, then um, they send in drones that the um, American agent was able to bring in from the U.S. They attack from above and we get to see the uh, back spine uh, lightning effect again. But it's just overwhelming. They're trying to get Godzilla to expend as much of his energy up rather than out with his atomic breath. Then they uh, um, detonate a bunch of explosives in the buildings surrounding Godzilla to collapse them in on him. And then they target buildings with, um, I think they were tanks outside the city limits to mm-hmm. collapse yeah. more on him. So we were, they get him to his knees and, and they then with cover the- him with missiles rubble. from the naval ships yep. to, to collapse the buildings. Yep. yep. And then, um, as he's subdued under this rubble, they bring in the, uh, they're kind of like crane <laughs> apparatuses to feed the coagulant into like his mouth. Like the long mouth. pipe cranes that they might yep. use to pump concrete or something like that. And, and I, uh, what I wrote Moses. down, um, he's kind of there with slack jawed and they're putting these tubes in his mouth and I was saying, we defeated Godzilla with modern dentistry. <laughs> that was my <laughs> kind of... Um, the way I was processing it. So there's a first wave. They go in. They get about 20% of the liquid that they had planned into his body. And then Godzilla gets up. And then um, he destroys that first wave. And he moves um, towards these train tracks. And they send every train in Tokyo loaded with explosives at his feet. And just decimate the guy's knees and shins. And he falls to the ground again really staggers, they're able to bring in a second and third wave of these cranes and just pump the guy full of coagulant. And he... 
it, it, it works, and he, he's frozen, and he, he kind of looks like Mecha Godzilla. So I'm, I'm interested to see if there <laughs> is a sequel where it would go. Um, so he's frozen in stasis, kind of. Everybody, there's a victory. Everybody's kind of um, excited, and the lower level guy that we kind of have been following, he um, ends up being in a position to run for prime minister as the um, kind of um, makeshift government that was put into place will be bowing out. And kind of this idea that um, Godzilla is frozen, but if there's ever any movement, that the UN will respond with nuclear force right away. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of victory and this hope for rebuilding, but also this kind of um, shadow of future nuclear problems. Mm-hmm. And that was Shin Godzilla. <laughs> oh, man, God you guys, damn it, it was beautiful. Both of you, your summaries, I mean, when you said summaries, I was thinking, oh yeah, we'll each do like a paragraph or two sort of thing. Like, you know, a summary. And then, y'all, Tim, you walked through every last step on Her Majesty's Secret Service, <laughs> and now, Joel, you did the same with Shane Godzilla. So you have big shoes to oh, fill God. next time. Next week, next month, week, why did I say week? Next month. <laughs> well, whenever Man. you get picked, it well, might be true. a running yeah, thing where we you might just go, yeah. pick each other, yeah. Man, Although so, I won't well, have to do it next time because it's my no, it'll be your so, film, man. Yeah. God so, damn, I love this movie. <laughs> well, well done, Joel. Thank you for summarizing. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I really am. I really like this movie, and it's always nice when mm-hmm. you find people who love the things you love. One side note: I, you keep referring to Godzilla as a he, as I know you That's two true. know, yeah. but the audience doesn't yet. I habitually refer to Godzilla as a she. I sometimes it's a he, sometimes no, a she. Weird. I just I don't whatever. I don't care. If you're mad about the correct version, uh, you know, whatever, go find an internet forum to yell about it on. <laughs> I mean, the, we just, the name we're talking is, about Godzilla here. We all yeah. know what we're talking about, yeah. all right? Let us be. It's Godzilla, not Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> First language joke of the night. There may be many. All right. So, Scott, um, hmm. how did you first come into the... this uh, film? I don't know. I mean, it's Godzilla. How do you not? <laughs> I, you know, Godzilla is such an icon. I, Everyone knows about Godzilla, mm. about the franchise, about the monster. I'm not... I'm really not 100% sure. I might have been reading something about the Brian Cranston Godzilla, mm-hmm. the American one, and someone mentioned, oh yeah, there's a Japanese one coming, and I heard about it that way. I might have heard about it in an Evangelion forum, where someone said that Anno, the creator of that show, was directing the next Godzilla, and I went, ooh, or, or I could have just seen a trailer. I, I really don't remember when I first heard about it. But when I first heard about it, it was a long way coming. Long way away. And at some point, I remember that there were plans for a theater release in the yeah. U.S., a very limited run. And I remembered in October of whatever year that was, 20, oh, duh, 2016, because the film only came out in 2016, mm-hmm. so... I remembered, oh, oh, wait, I remember they said the theater release fall of this year. And I typed in, Chinkazilla U.S. Theater, Google, ding, 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 ding. And it, the last day was the night... I typed that in. And it, I was typing it at like 11 at night. And they're like, last day of showings, you know. This date at like 9. <laughs> ah, so I missed it. So I kept my eyes peeled for the eventual American disc release and pre-ordered it. You oh. sent me the confirmation email. Yeah. I was, I was, yeah. I was excited. <laughs> I was excited. So, so that's how I came into possession of this. Also, the only Godzilla movie I own, in stark contrast to Joel, where I think this is the only one he doesn't own. Uh. There are 29 Godzilla films. I own 22 of them. <laughs> soon to be 23, because I'm buying this as soon as I can. 
Um, this thing is spectacular. It's the 29th made by Toho, but apparently the 31st in the franchise this last year. Oh, okay. Huh. So I have 21 of oh, the Toho yeah. releases. Mm-hmm. I have one American release. Okay. And I'll be buying this one. So you have a long history with Godzilla, clearly. Uh, I have a <laughs> more colloquial history and sort of fell into this one. I, I did see the American Godzilla with Brian Cranston in theaters. And, you know, I, I liked it a lot, so I, I wonder if... I'm not sure how I ended up seeing that either. <laughs> Maybe just casual interest, but I've stepped in more recently. But, Tim, mm-hmm. what's your history with Godzilla? Um, they used to no? date. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not a lot. I, I, was Godzilla he or she, then? Yeah. <laughs> Hey, it was college, you know. <laughs> right, we don't, we don't judge. Okay. Um, I think the only ones I've seen, like I, yeah, kind of knew knew of it as a kid. I saw the Matthew Broderick one. I was kind of like, I, you know, like oh, it was kind of a big deal because mm-hmm. that was like the I, that was the, like the first American one, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was like, okay, cool. Like I'm, not, you know, I, I didn't want to necessarily catch up on all of them, but okay, here's a way for me to see Godzilla in a modern setting and. You know, and and it was like okay. I didn't know it was supposed to be a comedy. That's fine. Okay, sure. Um, is it comedy? <laughs> it's a, it's difficult describing what that movie is. <laughs> um, and I feel like didn't it come out like soon after Jurassic Park? And I remember, I remember it, that it, was. I think it was on the tail of Jurassic yeah. or Lost World. On the, the tail. Second. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. But I remember that that being kind of part of it is like. Okay, like, didn't we just see a bunch of dinosaurs? And I'm like, okay, I guess Godzilla's bigger, and it's in New York. Not like you're going to this isolated island, so it's a bigger deal. But it seemed like, you know, almost like the the idea of Jurassic Park was what kind of ignited it. Like, oh, like, oh, hey, we just did a thing with a bunch of dinosaurs. Let's do this big monster from Japan. Like, like, now's the time to bring that in. And, you know, probably had a lot to do with, like, the technology catching up to there. Um, but, it, but it was fine. It wasn't, you know, like it didn't blow me away. Um, and then I also saw the Brian Cranston one in the theaters. I, re- I, I liked that one. I thought, it, I mean, it had, it had its flaws. Like, I thought it was weird that they were just, like, eating missiles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Muto things? Yeah. I thought that was weird. Like, I get the whole, like, needing, like, you know, the atomic energy or whatever, but it's just like, all right, you're just going to chomp down on an entire missile? Like... Okay, sure. You know, I mean, I mean, I guess that's how humans eat. It's like, oh, I need, you know, oh, I need this this vitamin or whatever. So it's like, all right, I'll wrap it in a bunch of bread. <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, so this is only like the third Godzilla one I've seen, and it was it was kind of neat. You know, I didn't have have any preconceived notions really. Uh, the only thing I knew about it was the the trailer that Scott you showed to me that. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought was a very effective trailer because it showed his atomic breath, but not all of it. Like there were still yeah, that parts video. that were in the film that <laughs> I, we didn't see. I saw see that in the video trailer. before I saw the film. Actually, I don't remember where or how. Mm-hmm. But whoever did that did a beautiful job of cutting it so that there were no spoilers. Yeah, you know, you see the breath and you see it go all lasery and you see it cut through buildings, but you don't see the dorsal fin part. You don't see the helicopter and how shot like down. his bottom you don't jaw see like the, opened the jaw. up. You don't see like the B two bombers. Yeah. You don't see any of that. Yeah. So whoever that was, thank you, thank you so much. You did a brilliant job of showcasing something cool, made me yeah. want to see the film without spoiling anything. Yeah, I, I don't know. I could never could not find the original video now. I'm sure it's been over mm-hmm. a year, but 
But whoever you were, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sorry. So um, that was yeah, your yeah. first exposure, Tim. Yeah. So so that that was that's pretty much my my yeah my history with Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I I like this one probably not as much as Joel, but <laughs> but I I still dug it. It was still like yeah, like there were still those moments where you're just like, oh my god, like you know something I I almost didn't feel that invested. At a lot of times, you know, when there was a lot of discussion, I, I will admit I dozed off a few times. But then when, like, when shit hit the fan, I just remember being like, holy crap, like, this is, this is, this is new, this is neat, this is, like, you know, this is terrifying, you know, like, um, so I feel like it was really cool that those moments still had that impact, even though I wasn't as engaged, you know, mm-hmm. um, to really kind of pull me, <laughs> pull me out of my sleep and be like, oh shit, you're gonna look at this. It, it's interesting that all the talking in the conference rooms and such is it's very governmental mm-hmm. which applies to plenty of countries but there are a lot of little things that are very Japanese like the entire discussion about how do we mobilize the SDF the self-defense force which is what Japan's military is called mm-hmm. not just called oh hey the army it's the, the SDF the self-defense force there's a whole little thing about exchange about the section in their constitution that allows them to mobilize the military and someone else says well yeah but that same section also says we can only do it after an armed attack mm-hmm. I mean this at creature that point Godzilla armed. hadn't had arms <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's true it didn't the arms were still sort of growing but but yes it, so you know they're sort of quibbling over the political details of how do we mobilize our military mm-hmm. you know in the US that wouldn't have been an issue President would have said, blow it up, and they would have, you know. Mm -hmm. Instead, we get these whole sequence of scenes of different people in different offices trying to find some political justification to mobilize the SDF. You really get a sense that every decision carries weight. Mm -hmm. It's not just throw everything we have at it, which is what you would get. I'm sorry, John. No, no, just what you would get in the American versions of these Mm -hmm. things is Mm -hmm. let's throw everything we have at it. And Mm -hmm. because this takes place in present day Japan, where there are no other kaiju. It's not like this is Pacific Rim Japan. Right. They've been fighting these things for decades. This is completely unprecedented. And there's a line in there somewhere about this is the first mobilization of our military since World War II. It's a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal. Huge oh, cultural impact. You know, especially for the Japanese. Yeah. But for everyone else, too. The, you know, that we have this nation that hasn't gone to war for... Uh, 70 years now? I mean... And what a decision to have to make wow. to allow the UN to use nuclear strikes on your most allow. populous... They're almost bullied into that decision. Yeah. Security Council comes along and says, we want to drop a nuke on Tokyo. But because it's your country, we really need your government to approve it. Right. Uh, so, approve it. <laughs> and I mean, that's it. They don't have any real choice. You know? And that, and of course, that's a big deal because Japan is the only nation that's ever had nuclear weapons used on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so now, now you're talking about Tokyo. Ooh, is that beautiful line from the second prime minister? Of, I never thought I'd go down in history for something like this. Who did? Whoever would have thought that? This is a neat line that I liked. I forget what the second half of it was exactly, but when they were talking about, you know, post-World War II, and they said something like, oh, I guess 
you know, that's that's it's always going to be that. Yeah, forever. like for, yeah. forever. Post-wars you know, it's like forever. yeah, it's mm-hmm. like it's not. You don't have this period of time, and then oh, now it's this sort of third age. It's like right. there's pre World War Two and there's post World War Two, and that's it. Especially for Japan, yeah, yeah. especially. And then they talk about there being a uh, post-Godzilla now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Mm. It's also interesting that the the cause of Godzilla is not nuclear testing, but nuclear dumping. dumping. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be specifically Japan's waste that contributes to that. Sometimes, I'm not sure. I couldn't tell right. from that, to be honest. There seems to be... In certain of the other films, it's implied that it's nuclear testing on the pit, pa- on the part of the Americans that cause mm-hmm. yep mm-hmm. bikini atoll and such. Yeah. They yeah. cause guns here. It's, it's environmental more than military. Mm-hmm. You know, dumping all this crap in the ocean. Well, look what happened. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that rings true certainly with the uh, Fukushima plant that happened recently. Mm-hmm. Was that was that the 2014, 2015? That was before the film. It was, it was very short before the yeah. film. But uh, let me just Google that up real quick here. I was gonna say it's funny, but it's, it's not really funny that these are pretty real and pertinent issues. Twenty eleven, I am off by by quite a bit. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Okay, twenty eleven. But but yeah, so not too far before yeah. the film. It's interesting that Godzilla's political message was. Not just oh nuclear and oh military and oh environmental, but very. I, I, this is going to sound redundant, but it was political. Mm-hmm. It was a lot to do with the function of government. There's that great line about the task force that our main character Yaguchi pulls together. There's a, and they introduce them to each other. They say, "All right, we got you all here together. Forget rank, forget seniority, forget age, forget all that other crap." You're all equal here. Everyone speak. We need all your minds. And then later, not too much later, there's that little bit in the morning after they've all been working all night where the one of them says, look at this, no interdepartment arguing, no, you know, posturing or masculine or none, none of all that. We're just, look at this. We're all just working efficiently, smoothly, happily. For the greater good. And the you know, NRSA is about, oh, there may be hope for this country yet, you know, because, you know, the other scenes we see, you know, as portrayed in the film, there's a lot of that. There's that bit where the one young lady who later joins the task force is in the room basically just seeing things that the others can't see. Mm-hmm. And one of the other ministers, oh, you know, forgive her lack of decorum. You know, this or that. You know, it's a weird contrast. Old versus new versus young, you know. Of here she is just sort of saying what needs to be said and the little circle of people on the prime minister, one of them begins with an apology for right. her her. For conducting herself, you it's know, really that's interesting a, the dynamic of the two <clears throat> kinds you know, of conference room. So, so his task force has that aside because that's oh, it's a waste, it's a waste of time, it's a waste of energy. Just no, we need answers, yeah. work. That's so. You know, America has every country, I'm sure, has similar issues at play between old and young, and old and new, and and just between different social constructs that change over time and mm-hmm. the constant interplay in any government between ceremony and practicality and you know efficiency and courtesy and all of these things that go together but uh, as portrayed in the film Japan in particular put a lot of emphasis on tradition the original government did mm-hmm. on seniority based literally on age right and that sort of thing 
And so there's this this overarching theme in the film of political reform. You know, not just Godzilla's typical anti-military or, or now you know environmental safety. Mm-hmm. Political reform that in order to survive this kind of disaster, certain things need to be set aside. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that. And that's just that's just really interesting to me. And it, it's effortless. It doesn't feel heavy-handed. No. It just makes sense for how the film progresses. Is that they beat their heads against the bureaucracy for so much of the film that it seems like the natural next step is this punk rock kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what yeah. the, they're these ragtag group of misfits who end up solving the problem. And to their credit, the original government begins to streamline. Before it dies, you know, it's not all—it's not blind, it's not stupid. Right. It knows what it's doing. You know, there's that whole beginning sequence you mentioned, Joel. They constantly have to ask the PM for a final say, final say. He's constantly going, "Oh man, and what about this?" And mm-hmm. there's a little scene when Godzilla is still tadpolezilla. <laughs> attack choppers line up, ready to fire, but they see some civilians after being assured the civilians were evacuated. So the PM calls off the attack. But even just getting him to getting everything in place to do it was just a whole process. So then, after Godzilla goes away, and evolves to adult Godzilla, and emerges again, there's another sequence. The choppers are on their way. And as the choppers are flying, the first thing that happens is the PM says, are we sure this time? The evacuation. And his advisor says, yes, I believe so. Yes. So then, once the choppers say they're in place, the heads all turn back up to him, and he pretty much just immediately says, okay, yes, attack, go. They're not... Because, you know, last time it escaped back into the ocean. Right. You can tell he's done with this, too. Right. And, but even, and after, is. even after he has that reaction, it goes through seven different levels of yes, 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 yeah. yes, He says yes. The person he spoke to says yes. That guy spot takes please into a phone, says yes, says yes, says yes, yeah. to the actual people in the field. Some of that I actually found very impressive in its efficiency. Mm-hmm. That you can communicate through every level of military command, from the PM to the cabinet general, to the division general, to the field commander, to the, finger to the, the chopper people on the trigger in seconds. Yes, click. Yes, picks up phone. Yes, clicks radio. Yes, fire. And that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And it's not dissimilar to the plan that stops Godzilla in the end, the way they communicate. Yeah. But, 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 I mean, yeah, it's still, it's still a little slow. It's almost like some of these things are just Inherent in the size mm-hmm. of government and military, but then lots of them are not, <laughs> and that first government is doing its best to strip away the unnecessary things. It was interesting that the, the um, I, I can't remember the name of the main protagonist. Yaguchi was the Naguchi. The, that, Yaguchi with a Y last name. Yeah, the Yaguchi, what, Yaguchi plan for a while. So when I don't he know shows, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I apologize. I don't speak Japanese. So when he shows up there at the end to implement the plan, he makes the decision to be on the line, like yes. there, directing. There's that line about you can see it's line much safer if you're from you know in the background. And he says, if a political decision needs to be made, I need I'm to the be one there. who needs to make it. And I need to be there exactly. I think it really we we get a shot of him kind of uh, when they're evacuating into the subways. He sees Godzilla in person for the first time. He sees his head kind of between these two buildings and I think it really messes him up that there's this kind of nebulous nature to it. he's this this monster on a screen miles and miles away he's finally on the ground he sees the size and the scope of the thing that he's dealing with mm-hmm. and then after um, the the kind of um, destruction 
we, we get a sequence of him just walking, we see his face, and he just, he's furious. He breaks, and we don't, we, he, he, he mouths a scream, and we get to see, he just is so frustrated because he hasn't had direct control. He hasn't been able to make any headway against this colossal force. I think getting to see him see Godzilla in person really kind of reshaped how he was considering this problem and how to, to take next steps. Mm. I liked that a lot. Yeah, that's a great scene. The music just strikes up and the the atomic breath lasers thing goes. and uh, They really... Something they do very well with this film, which won't be a surprise to anyone who's watched Evangelion, the TV series that the director's known for. I'm sorry to those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. Is that... So Evangelion is another... It's a kaiju TV series. Is that they did the sense of scale really well. Yeah. Something that some films have a hard time communicating. And especially in that scene, in its aftermath, of showing you how big Godzilla is, mm-hmm. and then how much destruction there was around it. There's a great bit from the... The, the, the Evangelion rebuild where the giant robot is shooting a gun at a monster and one of the shell casings from the gun lands on a car and it's the full length of the car and it just flattens it like a pancake and you just like that oh because otherwise you're watching this human shaped robot fight this monster and it's all sort of oh yeah sure just you know the city is tiny like a toy that shot really just bumped into perspective that oh I sit in cars lots of people do we get, a, we get a sequence with mm-hmm. that with uh, the, the they've kind of hit Godzilla with bigger artillery and the mm-hmm. s- smoke and they're kind of like that okay was, yeah we hit him yes. and then he throws a bridge <laughs> at, the at the tanks <laughs> yes out of the exactly smoke. that was just, that sense of scale was communicated yeah. so well through the whole film and really simply too like mm-hmm. it's just a great way of characterizing as that massive how did you guys feel about visually because. Godzilla films <laughs> are are an interesting kind of progression of rubber suit CGI CGI and rubber suit. Mm-hmm. I, I really like the cinematography in this. I don't know. Oh I mean, yeah, I love the visual, the whole package. But Godzilla, the the thing is all CG through the whole film. Is it really? I'm pretty sure, as far as I know. But. It doesn't, you're surprised because it doesn't look like it. No, it looks there rubber. There are times sometimes. when Godzilla looks like rubber. Not to its detriment. And that's done on purpose because to show that they know where they're coming from. They know mm-hmm. their roots and they're, they're paying respect to the tradition. Yeah. Even to some traditions. Even as they show the way other tradition must be tossed aside. Mm-hmm. Tradition cannot be kept for tradition's sake always. Right. But sometimes. I, I think it's entirely CG. But... It was really nice to see that Toho logo on a modern <laughs> film. I, I said that as soon as it came out. I was like, man, I like that. Yes, but yeah, that I, I like that. Because in the, the rubberiness of, of Godzilla's appearance, and the googly eyes of Tadpolezilla, and, and some of the other things here and there, it, it does tell you, oh, yeah, well, Godzilla. It's, you know, it's clear this is where that's come from. Yeah, it, um, <laughs> the thought I had was, well, if there's anything we learned from, from you know, the Star Wars prequels, it's that you know, a puppet is better than CGI. <laughs> but yeah, if they, I mean, if they've gotten to a point where I feel like a lot of what they've learned now with filmmaking is to do a, a combination of Practical. real stuff and kind of enhancing it with CGI to kind of round off the edges, but. 
Um, you know, and I think one of the big things I remember reading about is like lighting, the way light reflects off of things. Mm-hmm. And that was something that they had a hard time in general doing with CGI. So if you had a real thing and we're seeing how the light was interacting and how it was interacting with the stuff around it and you know, then it was like, okay, if we add this stuff to it that, you know, that lighting is there. Mm-hmm. Of course I think they improved upon that too, but um but yeah, there was definitely like a very like organic solid feel to it you know I don't you know whether it was you know completely CGI or suit or a mix of both like it definitely it, it felt real you know and then the way it was interacting with the stuff around it you know you you kind of got the sense of maybe the stuff being a model but you still got the weight of the things mm-hmm. I think that was part of it too is like a lot of times you're like okay this must be a rubber suit and models but like like the things that are supposed to be models, they didn't look like models. They mm-hmm. looked real. They looked like they had the detail of like that was really a car, not like a model of a car. You know, mm-hmm. I felt that a lot when they collapsed the buildings on top of them. Those yeah. felt like they had glass in them. They felt yeah. like they had weight, and they could actually make an impact just by sheer force of their weight yeah. falling to the ground on mm-hmm. top of Godzilla. There's a shot during Tadpolezilla, Babyzilla. I still don't know what my favorite <laughs> phrase is. That googly eyezilla. Googly eyes. Anyway, where she climbs up on a building, and then just pushes the whole thing over. Yeah. There's a brief shot, and it's not not out of malice. It's just sort of struggling up the surface and leaning on it, and it collapses. There's a shot as it's climbing of a family in an apartment. Can we get your stuff? We have to go. And then the next shot is as the whole apartment tips. I swear they built an apartment and then tipped the whole thing over, because I, I just all the furniture slides. They in a slide. Realistic They're way. physically the in the building. Slide yeah. In a realistic way, like hit the wall, things hit them. I mean, it wasn't. And they had to do that, right? They had to just build a box on a set, elevated, and tip the whole thing over. Mm-hmm. Is there any other way they could have accomplished that? I, not that I know of. I don't know. It's not just, you know, the, the view out the window of the approaching ground is clearly a screen, right? But the stuff around them isn't just oh, it's just edited in some CG objects to hit the wall. Right. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not like Star Trek with oh, everyone right. move this way, right. oh, everyone exactly. move this way. It's, <laughs> I swear, it's real stuff. Like the uh, there are a couple of places I've been to museums. They have earthquake simulation rooms. I swear, they just use one of those. Mm. <laughs> that yeah, was that was incredible. It's interesting. It's it's a very bloodless film because you don't see a lot of humans destroyed in it. You see a lot of buildings and that kind of carnage and you see a lot of running away. The mark away. of human construction. Right. But, but know, that sequence that's really really early where we see that and yeah. it really personalizes and makes like this is going to impact your home. And we see kind of in the wake of the carnage there's this pair of shoes and khakis that's just mangled. And with those two shots, you establish kind of the the inhumanity of it, mm-hmm. without showing blood and guts, and yeah. it's smeared all over the place. That I think that that was really effective. I think that's on purpose, and it's well done because gore tends to personalize things. It tends to draw emotions of malice. You know, a lot of what we otherwise see in films when people die. PG-13 movies where the bad guys fall over when Bond shoots them, you know. Mm-hmm. Or like a shot to the head, or a stab, or something. I'll use Game of Thrones as a, as a good example. There are, oh, beheadings. Right. And arrows, and they thunk into people. And then there are scenes where people get eaten alive, or flayed, or, you know, and there's this marked difference between you're just dying because you're dying, because I need to kill you or execute the criminal, or it's a co- big combat and the soldiers are dying. There's a marked difference between that and I'm 
you know, executing my prisoner to make an example or for fun. Or, you know, there's an extra sort of human emotion-based purpose behind the gore. And so in this film, they take the gore away because there's no malice here. Godzilla isn't executing these tiny beings. Ha 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 ha. You know, right. it's just this force. And we're just in the way. Like ants. It can't be stopped. Right. And keeping it bloodless helps with that. Yeah. It helps with the the outright force, the feeling of a, mm-hmm. a, a, a act of weather, a storm, or, or a, a Godzilla. You know? It was really <clears throat> interesting to see kind of it a comically large version of the fish becomes uh, legged and then can walk upright. That kind of el- evolutionary shape, but on a massive scale with humanity going on already. It was a really weird juxtaposition of kind of like this genesis of life on land mm-hmm. that's massive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Because I always think of it as like microscopic and then small. And That's yeah. the thing is this creature's genesis is enough to plow us out of the way with reckless abandon. Mm-hmm. It's like the so Rick and Morty tiny, what, tiny world. <laughs> right. So what would, what, would its, what would its later evolutions look like? What would its equivalent of humanity with technology look like to us right. when the tadpole equivalent plows our buildings over unintentionally just knocks them aside they, they talked about its ability to mutate and they kind of they, they uh, teased the King Ghidorah appearance because they said <laughs> we could grow wings and fly yeah. and then we get a scent, we get a shot of its tail at the end very, very, it's the last shot of the film and frozen in time are these skeletal like echoes coming out of its tail like grabbing for life and it's like stuff is sloughed off this thing as it's walked through something survived like asexual <laughs> reproduction of this almost humanoid looking it reminds me of like a weird version of the alien yeah, mm-hmm. that's, yeah that's almost a Prometheus yeah. type version mm-hmm. from when it was sort of there were a bunch of evolutions happening in that you know uh, one of the things I thought of when you were mentioning about the you know the the amount of carnage that they showed and how mm-hmm. you know that Godzilla was like more like a force of nature it wasn't you know kind of doing it to 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 be a dick it was just like hey I'm walking in a straight line that was something I thought of too like yeah like whenever they would show the destruction it's like a straight line it's not like it's like oh well there are people over here alright well I'm gonna go here and mess this up oh and there are more buildings you know and um you know the only other film I've seen that's like this is Cloverfield and in that one you definitely get a sense of the monster as being more just like aware of its surroundings and like turning corners and walking through some buildings knocking some small buildings down but you know going around other buildings like and it's got oh here's a helicopter yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and that it is it's angry you know and there's that one point like i mean the, the film ends with kind of the monster looking down at this one guy and just like fuck you and going after him you know it's it's not like oh whatever you're you're an ant to me i don't care i'm going over here like he was very much aware of what was around him and going after what was around him. There's that shot after Godzilla has retreated back into the ocean for the revolve. Mm-hmm. There are a couple shots of the map with lines drawn where it went. And it's just from the coast, a straight line, and then a sort of drunken wander, and then a straight line back to the coast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's also that shot with googly-eyed Zilla when the attack choppers are lined up and the civilians show up, you know, hold your fire. It's a couple of people, it's a man carrying somebody. Across, a, I think it's a train crossing. Yep. Like right in front of the monster, right there, and just doesn't, he just ignores them, doesn't care mm-hmm. because 
you know, it does. It does it's, again, yeah. we're not. It's not not here for us, right? Which provides a fear all its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Cloverfield, Tim, because the fear there is the the, the being hunted. Mm-hmm. You know, the humanity as a whole is being hunted by a larger creature, and we get some smaller hunting from the, the subway tiny creatures. Mm-hmm. But Godzilla, the fear is almost existential because it is so in our irrelevance. Yeah, that just nature, admittedly influenced by humans and nuclear waste. The nature has just created this yeah. other creature, and we are completely irrelevant to it. Yeah, that is where the horror comes from in this film, mm-hmm. where the fear, the sense of hopeless despair, comes not from the creature that can chase you through your dreams, or teleport, or will never stop. Like Terminator never stops; it's mm-hmm. a slow advance, or you know, Elm Street through your dreams, or Final Destination that will get mm-hmm. you somewhere in a combination you don't expect. That is not the fear. It's not supernatural. It's natural. <laughs> it's nature. Yeah. And we, to fight against it, all we have is our minds. We have humanity's great triumph of technology, invention, collaboration, that we've come together and made things greater than ourselves. You know, we've made computers and airplanes and mm-hmm. all this crazy technology that has elevated us beyond animals. And hopefully it's enough. It has to be enough. It's when a all bigger animal comes around. Mm-hmm. That is a theme that comes up in that TV series, Evangelion. And the TV series draws on a lot of religious themes from literally pretty much every religion in the world that combines them together. But the theme there is that the, the giant monsters were fighting. There's a line at some <clears> point about they who ate of the fruit of life who exist to destroy us, who ate of the fruit of knowledge. But the, the juxtaposition is that those monsters are so much more powerful than humans. They have force fields, and they're much more durable, and they're really difficult to kill. Their advantage is natural. Advantage is, is that of life. Mm-hmm. And ours is that of knowledge. And that comes up again here in Godzilla. Yeah. That this is a creature of nature, of life, and mm-hmm. just the life. Life happens, life evolves, life creates. Ah, look, new life, except that it's so much more powerful than us. It's going to kill us all. Knowledge. That is our power. And then Godzilla... In the name, there's the, the reference of gods and God and the power of God. The fruit of knowledge was our downfall from God in the Christian Bible. And that knowledge is the tool with which we fight against this new God. So it was, I, just, I like all the interplay with all these little themes back and forth. And, yeah. and even though there's really no mention of religion at all anywhere in this film, right. yeah. the themes there are sort of inherent because they're inherent to humanity. That idea of our knowledge is the fire we wield against mm-hmm. the darkness. Yeah. Prometheus. Yeah. Bring that into it, too. Exactly. Yes, yeah. thank you. I'm, yes, I've never thought of that. Mm-hmm. Brilliant, Tim. Thank you. Well, yeah, uh, uh, some of the stuff I've read, there's comparisons between Lucifer and Prometheus, mm-hmm. because the idea of bringing light, bringing fire, bringing knowledge, like, that was sort of what, you know, the... You sort of needed... And it, it's, it's interesting, too, when you, you have this, like, this god figure that's being punished for doing this thing that it wasn't supposed to but that thing is sort of what makes us us like you're saying that knowledge yeah. like you know and it's 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 viewed in a lot of these texts as almost being not evil in and of itself but something we weren't meant to have mm-hmm. you know and it's almost uh, you know I, and it's almost one of those cautionary tales that the farther we go in our evolution in our society it's like shit maybe they were right you know like mm-hmm. um, I remember when, one hearing one time someone say that we are the only species on this planet intelligent enough to destroy ourselves <laughs> <laughs> It sounds very uh, the Matrix, yeah. <laughs> very sort of Asimov. Mm. Yeah, 
Um, but there's also uh, uh, there's another thought I had with that too. Um, uh, it was when you were talking about the yeah, like the different religions and the uh, mm-hmm. oh yeah. So the idea that um, for for a while I felt that a lot of times um, you know humans uh, fight against evolution. Like we we believe that we are sort of the pinnacle of evolution. Anything kind of beyond us is an abomination. You know, you see this in the X Men. You know, where the X Men, the mutants, are the next stage in human evolution. They are better versions of us. But what do you get from humans? Like they're you know the whole hatred and fear. And it's like no no no, we can't allow this to happen. If if we give them this power, that means we die out because they replace us. And there's almost a sense of that too. I think with Godzilla, like you're saying, this is this superior being mm-hmm. that came about through nature. Nature, yeah. And humans are like, oh, we're scared of it. Fuck no. We're going to use all of our intelligence, all of our knowledge to try to tear it down and say, like, no, we will not let, you know. I mean, and, and that's different because that's not us evolving as a species. It's a whole new species, a whole new apex predator. But, like, the fact that we will use everything that we can to to stop the evolution, any sort of evolution on the planet, you know. It, there's this interesting to, to jump off of that a bit that, that power there's power that comes from some greater power whether that's a god in a religious story or whether it's nature mm-hmm. in a Godzilla story there's this thing which is greater than us mm-hmm. spiritual, religious, natural or otherwise that has has great power to create say Godzilla mm-hmm. or to cast man out or to smite him or to throw lightning bolts from Mount Olympus or whatever mm-hmm. but that that those greater powers have left us here at this point mm-hmm. as humans, but that we can elevate ourselves beyond it with our knowledge and our mm-hmm. tools, and we'll have to to survive mm-hmm. because this other power, again, whatever it is, religious or otherwise, is not something that can be controlled or necessarily understood. So we can't rely on it. We can't rely on it to. Oh, hey, aliens have invaded, but hey, humans just evolved telepathy. Oh, perfect timing. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that's we can't control it. Right. We can't control it, whatever it is. So we can't rely on it. Mm-hmm. We can't. Uh, we can't bank on biological adaptation mm-hmm. because it's a slow process. Mm-hmm. We're responding to the immediate threat <clears throat> with our best ally, which is our creativity. We are our own and best our, ally, yeah. our minds. Mm-hmm. That whether it is a god that could choose or choose not to elevate us, or a natural scientific process that. Doesn't we, care. Just doesn't care and takes as long as it happens to take. That we help, we find our best success when we help ourselves. Again, self-reliance, mm-hmm. which is a major theme from the film. Again, coming back to the political issues at hand and reliance not on old-fashionedness or on this is how it is because it is, but reliance on ourselves Wanting in the task force. Japan mm-hmm. And yes, reliance on Japan. To save Japan. Ooh, we, ooh, yay, circular themes. But I'm sorry, Tim, you were going to oh. say something about before I popped up with self reliance. Yeah. No, well, I mean, your thing was actually also relevant to the film we actually saw, where mine is kind of a tangent of. It reminds mm-hmm. me of, uh, I think it was no in rules the. against tangents. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the Brian Azzarello uh, Luther comic book. I still need to read that. Um, and it may not be in this story, but it's this sort of thing where it kind of goes into detail about why Lex Luthor hates Superman. And it's basically because he blames Superman for okay, humans I'm not sorry. being first making themselves better. When you said Luthor was actually the, the BBC TV series with Judas Elba. Oh. And okay. I was so confused for a moment before it all clicked. Oh, sorry. <laughs> 
Okay, I'm, I'm Lu- sorry, sorry, Tim. So Lex Luthor, <laughs> so, Lex Luthor, yeah, angry at Superman. Please. Yeah. So, so his, his reasoning is, and I've I've heard various versions of why he hates Superman. One was because he blamed him, like, oh, I'm so busy trying to take you down. I could have cured cancer by now if I wasn't, you know, constantly trying to, you know, defeat you. But, but yeah, in this other version, it was basically, it's it's kind of like the whole like, you know, give a man a fish versus teach him to fish. And he's like, with you here, you're just giving everybody fish. Like, nobody's learning to take care of themselves. Nobody's learning to be better. No one is learning to be self-reliant because they can rely on Superman. Like, if you weren't here, the human race would be getting better, would be being better at taking care of itself, would be, you know, going over these, um, you know, overcoming these obstacles. But with you here, they don't have to. So they've gotten lazy. They've gotten, you know... That is one of the best themes, I think, that we've explored in Superman stories. That his protection sort of stunts our growth. Mm-hmm. But I also want to point out that in Superman Red Sun... I knew that that's what you did. I knew you... I eyes linked and yeah. just the lightning bolt travel. <laughs> in Superman Red Sun, it's the opposite. Superman is the thing that drives Luthor to do all the great things he does. Mm-hmm. And he does eventually... I'm about to spoil Red Sun. Oh, don't spoil it. For, read no, Red okay. Sun. No, yeah. you're right. Read I Red Sun. Everybody should read Superman But Red Sun. at the yeah. end, all of the really impressive genius level things that Luther accomplishes is all because of Superman. because his obsession with Superman drove him to mm-hmm. so it's the complete opposite of that other one in which yeah. he's saying if you weren't here I could have done all these great things yeah instead it's I was driven to all these things because of these mm-hmm. ooh that is great we get that's these it. two completely opposite that's the thing I don't know if it is in the Christopher Reeve Superman movie but uh, Jor-El talks about they're going to Superman's biological father. Yeah, they're they're going to chase after you as an ideal, and they're going to stumble and they're going to fall, but they're going to be reaching towards this ideal. But what Superman in effect does is stunt the growth. I mean, like like you said, um, and there's a sense in the Luther comic that Superman's kind of mocking him, right? Just by his very existence, is mm-hmm. that it doesn't matter how much you accomplish, it doesn't matter how much you evolve. You're never going to be this. Right. You're yeah. never going to be this to these people. Mm-hmm. That I really want to read that. Yeah, that's, yeah, I need to read that too. That is also one of the issues with a lot of the Superman turns evil worlds, mm. Injustice or the Justice Lords or what have you. That he is just so far beyond what humanity could ever achieve that he's just going to do it for them and take over. You know, I, why don't you put the whole world in a bottle, Superman? <laughs> and that is what he does, tries to do in the Injustice. Is that what comics. Flash tells him? Flash tells him, why don't you just put him in a bottle? Uh, no, that's a quote from Red Sun. Oh, okay, that, you're right. But, um, uh, but see, that's the thing, though, is that you don't know it. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, you know, Superman could just say, uh, yeah, great, great example, Injustice. Flash and Superman have a great conversation in one of the earlier comics about. Via playing speed uh, chess. While playing amazing. chess at the speed of superpower. We could just take away all the guns. Superman says, we can do it. Boom, done. You and me. You know, fastest creatures to ever exist. Done. It would take us a day, maybe two. Boom, every god on the planet, gone. You know, oh, well, I mean, they'd hate us, but they'd be alive to hate us. But that's the sort of, instead of mocking, oh, you'll never be this. Mm -hmm. It's a, oh, they'll never be this, so I can just operate with this kind of control and impunity and direct their evolution. I can direct their future Mm -hmm. in any way that I want. That's a great conversation they have in that, if you ever get your chance to read it. It's really, really good. The Flash 
who Barry Zimmer is a forensic scientist. And there's a few more of the on the street realities of crime. It's a beautiful exchange. It's but yeah, so so if you have any interest in Superman, whether mm-hmm. stunting the growth or driving it mm-hmm. or controlling it, all these are results of the, the presence of this creature that is just incomprehensibly beyond humanity's abilities, all from Superman in one interpretation or another. Mm-hmm. It's funny to talk about Godzilla in conjunction with Superman because yeah. you wouldn't think of them in the same category, but right. they are these... Did, God, did Superman ever beat up a giant monster, a giant lizard monster? Yeah, I'm sure at some point. I'm sure there's a Superman Godzilla <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. That would be... Across well, somewhere, whoever has read that comic is yelling at their computer screen right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you idiots! <laughs> Haven't you heard of? And then, we yeah. we don't refute that we're idiots. Leave us a comment. I'd love to read that story, please. <laughs> yeah, but in, uh, one of the things you said too, when you're talking about like you know whether it's kind of stunting the growth, driving you for it, or or controlling you, um, I think like yeah, like the, the control is a part of the either way whether it's you know pushing you to grow you're still doing it because of this thing you know it's not like you know you're doing it because you feel like it like it is in re- direct response to yeah. this thing whether you know whether you're helping so either way like there's an element of control mm-hmm. from Superman or from Godzilla or whatever it is um, and I mean you know and, and I guess it's kind of interesting in a way too uh, and I feel like maybe humanity has been going through more of a cultural evolution as opposed to a biological evolution because in this thing like they you know they, in this film they did kind of have to evolve they did have to find a way to there was this this thing that was you know a threat to their survival and they had to find a way to overcome it so it wasn't about like you were saying waiting for the slow biology to happen where they evolved naturally to something that also had laser breath and could beat Godzilla like they had to use their mind but but they also did something that they had never done before and would have only done that if it was for Godzilla. You know, they worked together. They kind of all had this common enemy. Um, and I, and I, th- I feel like that's another big thing theme of this, too, is that, like, like the uh, Twilight Zone episode, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's when, like, the aliens come and they're just, like... The monsters like, are doing Maple Street. Or the monsters on Maple Street, or... No, I no? think it's a different one. Ah, like, sorry? I know which one you're talking about, though, yeah. That's a really good one. But, like, these aliens come and they're like, you know, you humans with your, you know, pitiful weapons trying to destroy each other, blah, 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 you're such a disgrace, we're just gonna wipe you out. And they're like, no, 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 give us a chance, give us 24 hours, you know, we can, we can fix it. And... They're like, you know, oh, then they achieve world peace because the whole time they were thinking the aliens were criticizing them for, like, being at war with each other. And the aliens come back the next day and they're like, look, we all work together and we achieve... And he's like, no, like, we were criticizing you. We were raising you to be a race of warriors and, like, you're bullshit. You haven't evolved, like, you know, past this, oh, we have atomic weapons and, you know, here are these aliens from a much more advanced society who have even greater weapons. And they're like, no, we're going to destroy you because you're not good enough at fighting. Not that you couldn't achieve world peace, Mm -hmm. but the fact that, like, they were able to achieve world peace once they had this unified threat where it was like, okay, here's a threat that's worse than all of us against each other. Now we can finally work together. And, you know, and, and, you know, kind of like with Godzilla was like, okay, everyone was like, this is, you know, this is what we need to do. Like, you know, we can't bicker among, like, well, I want to do this and you want to do that. It's like, no, we all have to stop Godzilla. Like, that's the one thing we can agree on. brings us back nicely to the self-reliance issue because Japan is struggling for control over its own fate from bigger parties like the UN mm. and the US but to solve the plan they come up with they have this this data sheet 
that they fold over to get genetic sequences. It needs to be sequenced quickly. And one of the guys says something like, well, I sent it off to our supercomputers, but even at their fastest speed, it'll take, you know, a couple of weeks. So they, they ask other countries for their supercomputer banks to network them together. And uh, there's a scene in Germany, briefly, mm-hmm. with the... Where it's funny that, you know, as much as Japan is struggling to be the master of its own fate, in some ways it can't do it alone. It just can't. You know, it needs the other computers. Right. But that, and they need uh, France to come in to help in. the UN. See, that's, that's the great, because certain parts of that, like the supercomputer issue, don't taint Japan's self-reliance. Because it's just too big for one country. End of sentence. And the country happens to be Japan is immaterial. Mm-hmm. You know, if it had been Germany, which is the, the country we see in the film, they would have been asking Japan, hey, can we network to your supercomputer? And there's a great... It's, it's, uh, it's kind of reaching the limits of technology and the necessity of human cooperation. Whereas the issue with France is we need someone who can delay the nuclear strike. And that power has already been taken from them. Right. Mm-hmm. So they have no choice but to go to someone else. That is a... You know, it's less of a, oh, the beauty of human cooperation and the need for it than it is a, you know, the political pithing match has left Japan not in control of its own fate. They need France to step in. But, but yeah, I just, I want to point that certain things that take away from self-reliance, like the supercomputer issue, they don't take away from self-reliance, despite, you know, needing other people. Mm-hmm. They sort of, you know, I don't know, I'm stumbling over my, my sentence here today. Uh-huh. I, I can see on your faces that you guys have got the point. I'm just, I hope the audience <laughs> right, has yeah. too. I, <laughs> no, we sorry, can see your we, faces yeah. too. <laughs> you beat me too. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to say, in, in the American version of a film like this, there's always one asshole right. that is holding something up because of personal reasons mm-hmm. or vendetta or money or those kinds of things. And we have a brief glimpse of that when they go to Germany to try and get help. Because <laughs> the one guy says, we have too, m- yeah, too someone much... Someone approaches a table with two important decision makers at it. And one and of them say, says, Japan wants us to network our computers. Well, we can't do that because we've got too much uh, sensitive material that if it gets out, it's not going to be good. Yeah, we're going to steal all our data. And then the sweetest German old lady <laughs> in all of film says, <laughs> no, that's ridiculous. Of course we're going to help. Them. Where's your faith in your fellow man? She says to him. And it's it's perfect. And it was, it was just a great kind of Response to what American films are. There's always some asshole who's out for himself, yeah. who who doesn't care about the greater implications of his selfish, greedy, bullshit thing to hold up this. Because it, it's always some political machination, mm-hmm. or he wants this thing for himself, and it holds up. And that's a plot point that ends up being something that delays the final set piece. We didn't have that in this, and that was awesome. Mm-hmm. But they, they set it aside, and that <clears throat> sort of comes up with the U.S.-Japan issue. Mm-hmm. There are a bunch of lines about the U.S. making unilateral requests and That's fair. taking yeah. the spare Godzilla data and whatnot. And then our U.S. character, the uh, I don't know what her exact role is, assistant to the ambassador or something like that. Something like that. But she, you know, she takes the sections of the government that she has control of and sets that sort of thing aside for the promise of future cooperation. Mm-hmm. And that's all, you know, not really for a, not for a promise of, oh, you're going to be, you're going to owe me later. Right. But just for an issue of, we do so much more when we all cooperate. you got to give a little to get a little. Mm-hmm. So, in that sense, the assholes have been steamrolled <laughs> already. So when it comes up again in Germany, it's just a sort of side note of, we've seen this before, but we can be so much more. The unilateral decision making, I shouldn't say unilateral. I should say the foreign decision-making starts with the B-2 bombings and the atomic breath. You mentioned the scene where the the U.S. 
people stand up and walk out of the room Just when the Japanese forces have military has failed. Mm-hmm. Is that what happens next? Is the Japanese government is suddenly informed that oh yeah, by the way, we're going to bomb it? They've been on their way. They're, they the were bombs already, are already in the air, and so. You know, publicly, Japan announces, ah, we have asked the U.S. for help because they have greater military power. Oh, okay, and that all happens before the bombs drop. So publicly, it looks like Japan asked. But Japan didn't ask. No kidding. The U.S. just said, yeah, yeah you see this this big circle on your map? It's going to blow up. You get something that needs bombing. Right. <laughs> We're here. We're good at that. Done. You know? uh, speaking of the combat, I, I had written down in my notes, mm-hmm. um, tanks, sexy movement. Ooh, yeah. When they show up in, in the first sequence where they're going to attack Godzilla with tanks, the oh, way those beautiful. tanks, it, it's just great choreography and the, the yeah. It, we're, they we're all, both they're doing, all lined up facing the same direction and their turrets turn all in perfect unison. It was, it was really precise and really sexy and I, I, I don't feel any shame about admitting that. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. It's There's a, a scene, a shot later where when the tanks all start to pull back. Yes. Where it, they have a camera attached to one of the turrets and the whole body rotates under the yes. tank. That, like, yeah. Yes. Like almost three cool. quarters of a turn and then shrunk, it starts moving. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful to watch. I have to check the scene again, but I almost think they could have done the same thing if the body just turns the other direction a quarter turn. Mm-hmm. But because it looked cool, they turned it I, three quarters the other way. But I'm you know what? I don't even care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It just looks good. It is a great illustration of the military power that our modern nations hold. Mm. Because Godzilla is bigger, as big as the biggest skyscrapers, and all the tanks got together and managed to cover both her legs in just fire when all the shells were going off. You just can't see her legs anymore because it's just explosions. Which, you know, is a great contrast of the all the big imposing monster against the power we can bring. But on the other hand, Godzilla is bigger than our skyscrapers. That would have been the entire building, and it would have been one salvo. Right. And it would have just, whoosh, no more building. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people I talked to had this tendency in the U.S. to think of Japan as a not terribly powerful military. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't compare anyone to the U.S. military. It's not really fair. You know, as they say, the, the largest air force in the world is the U.S. Air Force, and the second largest is the Navy. <laughs> I don't know how... how I don't, I, I, that might not be 100% number order true, but it's close, mm-hmm. is the thing. It, it is at least close to true, if not mm-hmm. actually true. That's not yeah. a joke. Right. I mean, it's a joke, but it's not. A, it's also not a joke. Yeah. So you can't really compare anyone to us. That's not really fair. So, so taking that into account, yeah, Japan's a fucking powerful military. Yeah. It really is. You know, we built them into the country they are today, and they, took, and they are not one to be trifled with. So when you've the people I've spoken to pushed past that, oh, you know, you know, readjusted their expectations of a military force. God, it's just, it's unbelievable. The tanks are all lined up, and I see some other vehicles, I want to say tank destroyers, that, that, that are wheeled instead of tracked. Mm-hmm. They've got cannons on the top, yeah. you see a few of those. So all of those are lined up. The actual howitzers are lined up some miles back, and then rocket artillery yeah. past that, and while all that is happening... The F-2s are sweeping in to drop their bombs, and the choppers are gone only because they're out of ammo. Right. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. It's it was, mind-boggling. It was really interesting to see Helicopter versus Godzilla, where they 
were far enough away to not be impacted by swiping and tail whipping. Yeah. Not that it helped them, because he can do things at his dorsal fins. It's weird that he has dorsal fins, but that's mm-hmm. what they are. Like, it, it, it was it was really interesting from a tactical it's standpoint. Sort of just big dorsal scales. Yeah, because yeah. they, they backed up and just fired at the thing, and they shot him in the head for once, instead yeah. of just shoulders and back. Mm-hmm. And There's none of that ridiculous, goofy military, oh, dumb, dumb shit. No, it's yeah. just very serious. Line up all the choppers, unload your machine guns and your cannons, and aim for the eyes. They do. And that's something like with the 98 Godzilla, it's a lot of fun to watch helicopters swoop in and out between <laughs> uh, skyscrapers and like search for Godzilla, but ineffective mm-hmm. and, I mean, utterly disastrous. <laughs> now, it was just nice to watch a competent military force. Oh, yeah. Go up against. I, I think that might have contributed to the hopelessness of it. Is that it was yeah. so well crafted and tactical? You and almost had, had this no moment effect. of, wow, the military could level this city faster than Godzilla's doing it right. if they wanted to, without nukes. They could just all that firepower. Yeah, yeah. that Godzilla hasn't leveled it because it's just, you know, like I said, it's a creature. It's not intending to. Mm-hmm. But if we were trying, we could do it pretty damn quickly. It's uh, it's scary. So, Scott, had you seen other Godzilla films? Yeah, I heard you saw 2014, yeah, which is 2014, Brian Cranston, right. It's I, funny that we refer to him as... I call it the Brian Cranston Godzilla. I just I saw the Broderick one once upon a time. Okay. You know, I mean, I have the general memories associated with it, the swiping and the sort of goofy aspects, but I don't have it very firmly set in my memory. Gotcha. And I haven't ever actually seen an entire old Godzilla in one sitting. I've I've seen not even I don't think I've ever seen the original actually, but I've seen one of the We're stopping the podcast. Put uh, it on. <laughs> one of the ones that was just Godzilla. None of the Godzilla and other monsters, right. but just a rubber suit Godzilla. I saw most of it in one sitting in a class somewhere. Okay. Not even not in college, one of my film classes, just I think it's school. I think one of our teachers just put it on one of those movie days. Nice. And I think we finished it later that year. I can like, I can picture it. I can see in my mind, oh, yeah, I remember doing this, but it really hasn't lasted. I think for practical purposes, we'll have to say no. I haven't seen... I, haven't, I can't reliably tell you anything about anything before 2014 Godzilla. Gotcha. So my first Godzilla film was 98. Mm-hmm. And the marketing for that film hit me, like, right where I live. Because it was Taco Bell, <laughs> size does matter, it was the Chihuahua Dog, and then oh Godzilla. Oh my god, my dad has a hat from that production. That's a baseball amazing. cat from that Godzilla production That's somewhere. Amazing. I'll dig it up for you. Really? I, I, I can. It's in California, it. I think. <laughs> that would be amazing. So, like, I'm he, sorry, I just you said size doesn't matter. I remember it's on the hat, and it all just everything came together. Like, so, like it, it hit me very much where I live. It's it's the first monster movie I saw in a theater. I saw it with all my cousins, and we were all like 10, 11, 12. So, mm-hmm. well, I guess I was eight, but we were that young age, and I came out of that theater just as excited as I could be. I had the toys. I actually had a, a, a Godzilla toy where he had a handle on the back. With two triggers and then two buttons on it, and it, one he would swipe, another he would open his mouth and roar, the other one he would pick up his foot and smash stuff. It was really really cool. Mm-hmm. To this day, I still love that movie. It has a bunch of problems, but it's a lot of fun to watch because it's terrible. After that, that was kind of the the genesis of my fandom, and then I started slowly c- collecting the movies. Um, I've seen one, two, and three. 
I've seen most of the ones that I have, um, but they're not. Kind of got. I, I, I've gotten in preparation for this podcast. I, I watched um, Godzilla versus Mothra again. That's before we watched this one. That was my favorite. This it's now my second favorite. Um, oh wow! Then I watched uh, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, which is the second appearance of Mechagodzilla. Um, the film following that I watched, and then um, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, which is the third film in the rebooted Toho series, and I haven't watched... So this since. Shin Godzilla is the second time or third time Toho has rebooted? Toho I don't know if I can speak with any authority I, about that. I think mm-hmm. it may be the third? Cause Godzilla Toho's th- third reboot of the franchise, okay. yes. Because yeah. mm-hmm. Godzilla 2000 was still in continuity with the second reboot, which came out in the 90s, 91, I believe. So I, I have a lot of experience with Rubber Suit Godzilla, and there's, there's a certain stage in the original Toho franchise where he moves from Godzilla the Destroyer to Godzilla Defender of the Earth. And that's, a, that's really fun because he interacts with the monsters that he usually fights against in a different way. You're going to get him and Rodan having a relationship, and then Mothra coming in and then kind of being allies against these bigger threats. And then it, it kind of goes really goofy. There's one that I really don't like that's uh, there's Godzilla on Monster Island, where it's all in the imagination of this kid. And it's he it, um, has this concept of a kaiju that's based on a bully that he has. It's very silly. I don't like it at all. <laughs> that kind of killed that that era of the Defender of the Earth for me. Um, Ibra, uh, King of the Deep, or it's the sea, Godzilla versus the Sea Monster. I really like that one. Um, Hidora, the Smog Monster. I really like that one too. And that has a weird kind of evolutionary transition monster. So that that was something that this one reminded me of. Um, Godzilla raids again is really good. Also, um, any time when space and time travel and aliens and then tiny little twins who sing to Mothra enter into the franchise, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> there's a whole history. It's 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 a very unique animal, and there's, I mean, over 29, 31 films, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on. Having, having seen a lot of them, this one was without a doubt my favorite. Mm, wow. That, wow, that's... Yeah. Uh, Serious sentence right there. <laughs> I'm delighted. I'm always. I'm. Oh man, I got to bring Joel his new favorite Godzilla movie. Just, feels good. Made someone happy. <laughs> oh, I, I just wanted to bring another note I had put down. Was yes, this guy? Please. This director is basically Japanese Wes Anderson, with the oh. symmetry of every shot and the choreography oh. of things. Oh. I was just like, it is really pleasing <laughs> to watch all of these conference rooms because they're so pristine. <laughs> Which is ordered. something else that was sort of very Japanese about it. Yeah. There was this neatness to all the rooms yeah. and the mm-hmm. cleanliness and the part where they line up all the coffee machine coffee copy machines. Yeah. Saw your your coffee cups and <laughs> coffee instead of copy all the copy machines against mm-hmm. the wall and the desks and the chairs and laptops and they just produced a situation room out of nothing, you know. Petra would love living in Japan. Just the O C D of me would just be like Yes, everything's perfectly lined up as it should be. <laughs> That's odd. Walk into a building somewhere and fix something by a half centimeter, and they say, "Need a job?" Yeah, he's <laughs> uh, a new PM. <laughs> <laughs> what do you know about agriculture? <laughs> Are you old and know agriculture? Because you could be the PM, you save the world. <laughs> Tim, you don't like Wes Anderson, right? It's odd for somebody who likes symmetry as much as you do not to like 
Well, I, he's quirky, and that's all the conversation. But yeah, um, I, I haven't seen a lot of it. I saw like I saw Rushmore it was fine. I think I saw Royal Tannenbaums, and I was like, "What you is didn't this?" Like that one, yeah. yeah, that's right. We've had this conversation often. Yeah, um, and I, I mean, I'd be willing to try. Like, and that was sort of the thing is, I kind of came upon that on my own, and it was like um, <laughs> when I was at Blockbuster. Yes, that was the, <laughs> there. It is. We made it. There it is. Hour twenty-seven. Well, uh, it took a while this time, but we uh, did it. Yeah, uh, that was I think around when Rushmore had come out. I think so. Like yeah, 2000, 2001, 2002-ish, somewhere in there, maybe. Anyway, so like you know, it was one of the the, the hot movie releases. So I saw it and I was like, okay. And you know, a lot of the people I was friends with at that time, you know, we were into a lot of the you know these these up and coming filmmakers, you know, who were like kind of these indie filmmakers who actually had budgets, you know, like. Aaron Aronofsky and Christopher Nolan, mm-hmm. you know, Pi and, and Requiem for Dream and Memento, like all those films were kind of, all, I feel like, coming around. Uh, coming out around that time, like the early 2000s, uh, Coen Brothers, that was another, you know, that was, I think, when I was trying to get into them. Uh, oh, Brother, Where Art Thou was the film uh-huh. that came out around that time. Yes. Have you seen that, Joel? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. That's, that's I, another one I don't like. Yeah. <laughs> but, that's fair. Um, so, yeah, so, so it was kind of like, oh, these are all the, you know, everyone who kind of fancies themselves, you know, someone who likes film as opposed to someone who likes movies. <laughs> you know, those were the type of things you watch. I just remember being like, uh, like, okay, I don't get it. Like, I don't get why... Um, and I, I, I didn't hate it necessarily, but it was just, like, not not really as worth my time. Like, I didn't really see why I should pursue it and watch more and more. However, if, you know, if there are... If there's someone who loves it and is like, oh, you should watch this one. Yeah, like, you talked to me about uh, the... Um, Zisu. Zisu, yeah. So, like, I would watch that and be like, okay, I'll give this a shot. If you love this, maybe it, there's something I'm missing, you know. And, I'll love basket you know, for you. I'll yeah, yeah. laugh at all the Yeah, things. exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and again, I'm at that point in my life now where I'm just like, you know, maybe all the things I don't like is because I'm missing something, not that it's a flaw in the thing, because I don't know anything. So, <laughs> So sure, like tell me, you know, teach me how to like this thing. That's fine. And on the other hand, there's as as we age, there's also a greater acceptance of knowing that we don't have to like or dislike everything. Right. right. Just maybe it's just because oh, yeah. maybe I'll see this in a new light and then I'll like it. Yeah. But then you know maybe I won't and just oh well, just not for me. Yeah. I'll find something else I do like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. You sort of brought us back to especially with your mention of film people and movie people. Right. <laughs> to the discussion we had earlier tonight. We toasted. Uh, this is shortly after our our intro episode was posted online, Woo-hoo. so we came together to celebrate the first posting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had some scotch, and it was delicious. I asked him. I said, well, "I don't know." We had a little, you know, little bit of education. So I said, "Do you know the correct way to drink scotch?" And he started telling me about this thing his friend said about all the weird stuff you have to do. And no, 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 any way you want. Which actually, I was told by a representative of the McCowan Company once. So anyone <laughs> who thinks that's not official can shut the hell up. <laughs> told that McCowan. Confirmed. But, um, uh, that's that it is with everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, how do you take your coffee? Well, take it black because I'm a man. Take it how you enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, how do you drink your scotch? Take it how you like it. Mm-hmm. Well, what kinds of films do you like? I like the films that I enjoy watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whether they're good films or bad films or cheesy or crazy, it doesn't matter. That's if what this I podcast enjoyed is it, about. If you sure enjoyed is. a film, great. It's a good film. Then for you, it's a good film. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I, I just I, I've been having a similar experience with John, mm-hmm. our website John, with a lot of 
80s movies where I just had no interest or didn't bother and he'll tell me about them one day at work oh man I gotta rave about this and the things that he had and the childhood memories and all oh huh well I'll go watch it and with that new perspective uh-huh. maybe I'll like it more mm-hmm. maybe I won't some of them I have some of them I haven't but like what you just mentioned about Zizu or the, that thing you're trying about finding someone who likes it mm-hmm. and then going and watching it after their recommendation That's, right it's just, it's great. It's yeah. a great thing. Mm-hmm. It brings a lot more joy. The internet especially fosters so much negativity yeah. about these things that you have to fall on one side or the other. I'm defending my movie against all the haters or, oh man, it was so terrible. You know, and you just, you don't, you don't have to fall yeah. into a camp, you know? Yeah. I feel like, yeah, like a lot of times there are people who, if they, yeah, if they've decided that they hate something, they're they're unwilling to be proven wrong. You know, even if it means that they could actually get more enjoyment out of something and therefore out of life in general, it's like right. no, the fact that I've decided I hate this means I can't be proven wrong. And and you know, and, and that's sort of the thing for me too is like like I'm not going to go out and try to watch all Wes Anderson's films to try to force myself to like it. No, yeah. You know, but but I'm also not going to like fight against it if someone's like, well, hey, I think you know, from what I know about you, you might really like this. You know, and it's like, no, I, I can't because I made that promise that I'm going to hate all Wes Anderson's <laughs> films and I can't be proven. You know, it's like, yeah. sure, sure, like if I'm going to enjoy a two-hour film, like, yeah, let's do it. And it's those prior experiences act as a sort of vague roadmap mm-hmm. that you know, if you have a bunch of movies to see in a theater, and one of them is a Wes Anderson movie, you're probably going to see another one, right? Yeah, but they're a roadmap that we are willing to deviate from. Mm-hmm. You know, if we are being mm-hmm. mature and open to new experiences and such. As, as you are, as you mm-hmm. just mentioned. And that then if you're at the theater with a friend, you're going, what should we see tonight? And your friend goes, ooh, Wes Anderson, can we see that? And you go, yeah. Yeah. Because you think, you know what, why not? Let's give it, we'll see. Right, yeah. Right. This time, why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's just and, nice. It's, so much of this is just choosing to be happier about mm-hmm. so many things. Yeah. And I mean, that's how it is with music, too. Like, you know, being a, a, a composer, you know, it's like you, you think about all the music you should be studying, and I should probably be listening to way more Bach and Mozart and Beethoven. And, and it's just kind of like, you know, like I, I do that when I'm in school because it's like this is the stuff you should listen to to learn. But it's like there's so much by, like, George Crumb and Penderecki that I haven't listened to, you know, who, you know... I mean, George Crumb is still my favorite. Penderecki is such a close second. Like, he's they're almost tied. But, like, there's so much stuff by them that I haven't heard. And, like, everything I hear, I just... I, I love it, and I'm so engaged. And, and, you know, and that's sort of more the experience I try to seek out, is, like, things that really, like, energize me. Not like, oh, yes, yes, I see what he did there, and I should, I should, you know, I should follow that and do that. And, you know, and if I can... If I could become a master of this piece, then I can show off all my knowledge of all these classical composers about, you know, when I'm talking with other people and, you know, you're trying to, like, have this pissing contest of who knows more about what, you know, and it's just like, I, I want to know more about the things I'm interested in, mm-hmm. you know. But, uh, yeah, again, I'm open to, like, hey, here's this other thing you might not have thought of, you know, and, and it's like, okay, cool. Like mm-hmm. That actually just happened with with you, Joel, not too long ago when we spent that night we watched a couple of movies and then we listened to music. Mm-hmm. We started, you know, our musical tastes intersect in a lot of places. A lot they of places. They intersected with uh, Maynard Ferguson. Yes. Oh just, my God. Uh, so later, you know, when you walked me through the full roadmap of, of Aerosmith, <laughs> their whole career. I'm sorry, that <laughs> no, was a no, long Aerosmith trip. is a band I haven't really given a lot of thought to. In fact, that they're quote-unquote sound, you know, the overarching <laughs> sort of thing. Isn't something I've given a lot of... I, I've been, <laughs> dove too deeply into. 
<laughs> you know, um, just that that chunk of time and that that trend that made that they got famous on wasn't something I paid a whole lot of attention to. I kind of I bought their greatest hits CD and I went, oh okay, it's fine. And it's in my random classical rock rotation. Right. And, but you know, we just had that beautiful click of oh yes, Marriage Ferguson. And so I thought he's going to show me something that I haven't seen before, and you did. You really did. You did the same thing with Metric, though. Metric was glad I could. Was fun. So that you know, if it weren't for Joel, I might have spent the rest of my life just sort of shrugging at Aerosmith. And you know, as we said about if you don't like something, then oh well, you go for something you do like, and whatever. Not, you know, not that I would have fought against their fans or anything drastic, <laughs> but just that, yeah, we had we had the exact experience we're talking about mm-hmm. of he's gonna he's gonna show me something. He did mm-hmm. some of that middle stuff really just really clicked in a way that their greatest hits don't for me. Yeah. You know? There's a lot yeah. of deep cuts in Aerosmith's <laughs> discography. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> Stay tuned. Uh, music Mama. Aero- yeah, music there Mama. There you go. <laughs> That's the least, <laughs> least creative name. TM. <laughs> yeah. Copyright that right now. When we were talking about the, the distinction between film oh. and movies, I thought it would be funny. There's a pre- a parallel universe with a pretentious version of this podcast <laughs> called Film Filibuster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Maybe we should throw that in, like, we'll just do a really snooty, asshole, pretentious version. Oh, we'll get some Foley effects going on, <laughs> blinking glasses and mm-hmm. such, you know? Yeah. Um, fancy color. Ah, uh, yes, thank you. But what are you doing? One step from the left. <laughs> oh, man. Film Filibuster. Beautiful. So, as we're coming into the, the end, did anybody else have any other notes things they wanted to talk about? No. no I imagine we'll good. get to stuff in the recap, too. Sure. There's a lot yeah, to talk about. Sometimes to digest. Yeah. Um, did anybody have a I situational oh, okay. recommendation? Like, or, Tim, do you have one? I don't <clears> no. Know. At uh, some point, I need to find a more uh, succinct way of saying situational no, recommendation. It is, it is time for <laughs> another situation. Movie How many freaking syllables is that? <laughs> really a recommendation. I mean, the name so of the podcast is just a mumble. question of. Uh, I have two here, not entirely dissimilar. Let's do both of them. I, well, we'll start with one. Double, we'll up, double stuffed up. episode. Save one for next time. Yeah, in case no, you don't I'll think of it. Or I'll steal it if I can't sure. think of it next time. Okay, so arbitrarily. Which film did you do a complete 180 on? You started off hating it, and now you love it, or vice versa. You once loved it, and now you can't stand it. That is Ooh, good. Oh, shit. Scott, do you have one in mind? Yeah, I do. Here have it goes. A couple, Here we go. I have, I have a couple. I've actually lost the title of the one at the moment. I'm digging through my mind for it. And the other one, you're all going to be mad at me for mentioning because... It's The Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't think The Matrix quite quite warrants a complete 180. It wasn't okay. that severe. But it went from me watching it first time going, oh, wow, it was not nearly as good as everyone said it would be. But I think I was a victim of hype as much as anything else. To later going, oh, no, yeah, this is actually a really great action movie. To me now going, no, I kind of don't care anymore. <laughs> Gone all the way around. Gotcha. <laughs> full, Maybe somewhere in the middle. Circle. That's a three sixty. <laughs> right. um, I'll try to think up the other film. Okay. I can picture it. I can't. I can't judge up the title. Uh, yeah, I know. Like, it's a tough question. No, I, I, I am sorry. I'm sure there are ones. Well, especially like you know the idea of like 
doing a 180, like, it's hard to picture something that... Maybe not so sudden. Yeah. You know, just that you've... Yeah, and I guess that's part of it is, like, either if I love it and I'm watching it over and over again... I mean, there, there are definitely films that I've kind of... Yeah, I guess, like, oh, I don't need to see that as many times anymore, but I don't know that I dislike it, or if, if there's a film I don't like, I don't know that I would watch it over and over again to try to force myself to like right. it. Because um, we kind of talked about that last episode, was a, a film that you keep trying to get. Right? It was yeah. The Born Legacy. The oh, okay. Born movie. oh, okay. The the one with... Renner. Renner, thank you, Jeremy Renner, mm-hmm. who I, I, I like a lot as an actor. I went to see that in the theater with my dad, and we both came out. As much as I tried to keep my expectations down, it didn't work. And so I came out disappointed. Mm-hmm. Just with, uh, whatever. And he sort of looked at me and just we shrugged and we went to dinner. <laughs> and I, I just, well. But then later, and before Jason Bourne came out, the most recent yeah, one, before fine. that, yeah. I rewatched it again, I think on TV. I went at home for something and just on TV, and they were playing it. One of those, they were playing all four films in the series, just right. back to back to back yeah. repeatedly. And I just. I saw more, and I noticed more, and I noticed the broader impl- the implications for a broader world that they were setting up in that film. Gotcha. And I went, oh my god, this film was a little lackluster because it's a foundation. Right. And the things they could build, oh my god, and I just, I, I just, it, I saw, I understood, you know, and I went, oh. And actually, then when they announced Jason Bourne, they were like, oh, we're bringing back Matt Damon, and I went, no, <laughs> like, you just covered up your perfectly beautiful foundation and said, fuck it, we're going back to the old building. See, it's kind of fallen down from neglect, like, we'll, we'll prop it up again. <laughs> you know, and yeah, that was it. That was the one I really turned around on. It just, oh, just clicked. I just finally saw, like, the main plot was a little, little repetitive, a little here and there, because they were throwing in these little details and little bits that were just little, the roots, the sprouts of many branches. Mm. And I thought, holy crow, you could do a TV show based on this one at the same time as you make a film trilogy based on this one and have them interlock. And I mean, I just, it was beautifully done. Mm. But I really didn't appreciate it at the time. Gotcha. Maybe for me it's uh, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Hmm. I think just because I saw it when I was so young, uh, you know, for the first time, and it's like, um, and I remember you know, kind of my my mother kind of shedding some light on this where she was talking about how, um, you know, like you watch Star Wars and space is so loud and exciting and there's lasers mm. and, and everything's like, you know, spaceships are flying. And then you watch 2001 and there's just like this giant space station just slowly spinning in space. Mm-hmm. And you're like, the fuck? Where are the lasers? You know, <laughs> and and you know, and, and just like so much of it is so so slow moving and 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 so silent and this weird, uncomfortable like peacefulness. Um, and of course, the ending is like super confusing. Um, and then you know, like as I got older and like watched it again, it was just like, oh, like you know, and and you know, having the internet and sort of digging into like what are some fan theories about this and oh wow this is really cool and what does the obelisk represent and why you know what is this what's the deal with this and oh okay that's what and you know and the kind of the more you dig into it the more you're just like yeah like there's so many like really cool things here and really cool connections to other things and like or or even like uh I think it was when I was actually at Lamont at DU when they were talking about um the the you know the bicycle built for two the daisy that song mm-hmm. that um that Hal 
like is singing like that was a reference to uh, someone had like programmed it was the first person to program like a, a machine to to sing to be able to like produce pitches and words and like that was the song that it sang hmm. so hell singing that is like a reference to that where you know it was sort of a um uh, this moment of bringing a very kind of human thing to a machine, like singing, you know, both changing the notes and the words, and that was sort of like, you know, Hal's kind of like swan song, um, you know, because that's kind of what Hal represented. And, um, oh, another really cool, cool fun fact is um, the idea that, uh, you know, the obelisk people, I guess, the, you know, the, the probably more common thing is that it kind of shows up when there's about to be like a huge shift in human consciousness mm-hmm. and whatever. So in the middle of that film, there's a, an intermission, and the screen goes black. And the theory is that that screen is the obelisk. Oh, that wow. it is a shift of consciousness that's for happening the for the people who are watching that film. Um, so that was definitely what, yeah, the more I dug into it, I was just like, okay, I get this. Like, I get why it's so slow. It's, it's not meant to be Star Wars. It's, but, you know, and, and to, to appreciate all those things and, and how long it is and how drawn out stuff is and how it's meant to be, you know, a very real portrayal of space and, and things like that. Um, so That's yeah. one I need to try again. I, I've tried that movie three separate occasions, and I can't make it through yet. And I, I, I feel like as a sci-fi fan and a fan of film, I owe it to that movie to try and watch it. Mm-hmm. I just I keep stalling that. I don't know if I'm trying to do it too late in the day or what. The, it, it is very slow. Mm-hmm. And I, I need you know, to give like, it. Kubrick's films all stand separately for me. Distinctly, mm-hmm. like I mean, I love Strange Love. Oh man, I oh, I really love that film. Uh, Two thousand one, A Space Odyssey, I enjoyed. But then, The Shining, I I like well enough. But there's something that just doesn't quite hit my personal tastes. I think we might have talked about this last yeah. episode. Mm-hmm. And then The Clockwork Orange, I kind of just don't care. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I watched it and it was good, and I wasn't. It just I have so much trouble bringing myself to care about what's happening to those people. Which, you know, it's... Those are... People list those four films as, oh man, Kubrick's awesome films. And mm-hmm. and sure, there are production similarities and... Um, oh, what's the word? I want? Not thematic. Sort of tonal, I guess, similarities. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, they're all so very distinct for me in terms of how much I like them and why. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, yeah, maybe you, know, maybe you won't end up ever really liking 2001, but, but I would say to then... From my own experience, keep exploring Kubrick's other films. Gotcha. Because so far for me, they've proven to all provide mm-hmm. very different experiences. Eyes Wide Shut is really cool too. I mean, aside from the whole like orgy part of it, like <laughs> like the structure of the film and how you know Kubrick usually I feel like deals with these very big concepts. Mm-hmm. So to then have a film that features on like a husband and wife and jealousy, mm-hmm. you know, and how like that like spirals and snowballs and sort of breeds this whole thing on this, you know, not not massive scale, but it definitely dips into this bigger scale. And, and you know, the way music is used in that is, is incredible. And, like, you know, the, there's just so many things that are, like, creepy and just, like, like, what the hell is going on? And, you know, these seemingly random things that you're, like, is there significance to that? You know, like, should I look into that? Like, what 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 is the deal with that person? Why why does this like shop owner have this like younger? Is that his daughter? Is that his like younger? Look? Like, what's going on? Like, you know, there are just so many like little things. But like, it's I think it's a lot more palatable because it's on a very sort of personal level. Like, you're not dealing with something like yeah, The Shining or Two Thousand One, where it's like these giant concepts where 
if you're not automatically invested, you're just kind of like, okay, why should I care about this? And it's like, you know, you can kind of get it very easily. And they, I think they kind of, he's able to like coax you onto that journey because like, oh, here's an, here's an, you know, uh, here's an emotion I'm sure you felt at one point in your life. You know, your significant other tells you a story about how, you know, she saw some guy she was attracted to and thought about leaving you, but she didn't. But now you're like, well, I'm going to go cheat on my wife. You know, that's the, that's sort of like logical, <laughs> illogical sort of extrapolation of that, you know, and, but then the journey that he goes on as a result of that is just like incredible and you know and then fitting right into the middle for me is Full Metal Jacket which I think is one unbelievable triumph of filmmaking stitched to one really mediocre boring just kind of terrible thing on the other side Hmm. the first time I watched that and I love the whole train sequence up through pile but the whole once we arrive in country yeah I remember the first time I watched that I said to myself why did I finish this Mm mm-hmm I've only seen I with Pile, yeah. and I've rewatched it a number of times since then. And I now no longer watch After Pile. I yeah. just don't bother. I've only seen it once all the way through, but I've seen <laughs> the opening like four times. Oh yeah, oh, I mean that whole yeah. first because it is split very distinctly the two yeah. stories, yeah. training and post training. I think training is a cinematic triumph. Oh my god! So I think that actually that beautifully captures what I was just saying about the other films. It's the whole film, Full Metal Jacket, half and half film. So that's one I haven't seen yeah. either. So, so anyway, uh, Joel, you have yet to provide us with your your turnaround. This one's it's rough, yeah. and I feel like the the two that came to mind uh, rather laboriously are kind of more situational than anything else. Um, yeah. My first impression of Blade Runner wasn't great, but that was because the first time I watched it was on a road trip on a screen about seven se- seven Ugh. inches big, and. Like the the whole effect of the end sequence was diminished by the fact that there was sunlight streaming in from the yeah. windows. And, it is a very visual film. So watching that, I was like, okay, it's just a film, it's fine. And then I saw it sitting on a couch, watching it on a screen, and I was like, this is outstanding. <laughs> and I could probably do without seeing any other movies ever again. <laughs> like this, this is okay. If this was all I had to watch, I'd be all right. And then having read um, To Android's Dream of Electric Sheep afterwards and kind of having And then that. watching it again after you read yeah. the book. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that one opened up quite a bit. As a kid, I really enjoyed The Phantom. Oh, so you're starring Billy the Zane. only one who has a negative turnaround. So Good. I, I was hope, hoping yeah. we wouldn't all have positive turnarounds. This is a blockbuster-related story. There terrible people yeah. in the room. Yeah. <laughs> Every opportunity that I could, I rented that from Blockbuster, mm-hmm. and I watched it over and over and over and over again. I had the experience of renting it. I, I don't even think... I, I bought a VHS copy of it, and it was cool because it had the uh, holographic cover where this oh, yeah. ring mm-hmm. is coming mm-hmm. out at you. And I didn't finish it. I got... Huh. I mean, I think it's only... It's not two hours long. Like, it's pretty short. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just comically bad. And I couldn't finish it. And it was really kind of soul-crushing for this, this like, staple of my childhood. And I watched it. I was just like, this is poor man's Batman and it, it, with none of the cool things about Batman. And I, he had skull rings. That was about as the coolest thing that... I mean, he had guns, too, and skulls that lit up and melted people's faces. But other than that, there wasn't a lot going on. Another positive one turnaround would be um, Temple of Doom. Oh, hmm. 
And I think mainly my dislike of it was it was so different from Raiders and Crusade. Last Crusade. Yeah. It's such a different it is. film. That, yeah. As a child, it was my least favorite. And I still liked it. I loved all three, but it was easily my least favorite. But now, it's... It's great. Lad and Crusade buck, buck back and forth. Gotcha. But I think Temple wins out more often than not. See, with that one, it, it, the opening sequence is really interesting and unique, and you kind of see Indy in a noirish kind of setting, yeah. which is really fun. You also get a glimpse at what his life is like when he's not on one of these grand adventures. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's one I've, I've kind of... And I think my dislike of that film was mainly because my dad really liked one and three. So that's mm-hmm. those are the ones I saw all the time. Mm-hmm. And if I had seen Temple of Doom, it was because I was watching it with my dad, and he was begrudgingly watching it. Mm-hmm. So that was... <clears throat> yeah, that, those would probably be my three weird ones. I think it's a it's a very good example of like the the sort of trilogy format where you have this like you know or like in music like this ABA form you know where you have something then you have to have like a different thing and then, and then go back, go to, back the to the thing. original yeah. and it's 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 interesting how it's almost formulaic like when you look at the the first and second one like well what happened in the first one well okay you know Indy beds this woman okay so in this one he's not going to have sex with her okay so okay what else and they're like oh well you know and and yeah going from that sort of like going for this this artifact um, with I think some religious significance I think in the fr- I forget what exactly it was in the first the arc it was the, the arc of the well no but like the the, oh, the 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 opening he was going for some smaller thing I thought oh the golden uh, skull Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. In the, jungle in the temple. temple, and then in the second one, it's yeah, like you said, it's this it's sort of noir thing. I think diamond, in the, yeah. yeah. And in the the first and the third one, he actually goes back to his to school, and yeah, he's like in his school in his office. You right, see yeah. this little glimpse of him as a teacher. Filmed at University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. Oh, nice. Don't go to Stockton. Okay. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you, you don't you don't get that in in the second one. It kind of just he like stumbles into this adventure. Yeah, so it was it, it's neat I think to look at all three and see how they followed that. And that I, I wonder if like you ever had to sit down and watch all three in a row, if it would make the viewing as a whole that much better because you get to have this concept, a complete break from it, but then a return to that concept. And, and I think that's why a lot of people are like, yeah, I like one and three because that's that's what they like about Indiana Jones and what made it cool. And, but if we had done three movies like that, I would have been like I was a part of it. If yeah. if they had made three movies exactly like that, yeah, by the third one, would be like, oh, what the hell? Come on, like you're beating this whole religious artifact thing to death. Like let's yeah. do something else, you know? And see, it's kind of like the opposite of what they did with Back to the Future's trilogy, mm-hmm. where one was meant to be its own thing mm-hmm. and then two spent most of half of its time setting up three and then the other half being weird mm-hmm. and then three just being this pretty interesting conclusion but it doesn't have that A, B, A format it's mm-hmm. like A, then C and D mm-hmm. the, the, the through lines are very strange and yeah. four feels like a more natural sequel than two did for Indy no, for Back to the Future oh man, I wasn't supposed to tell anyone yet Shit. I mean, I've never seen a DeLorean. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> hey, time travel joke. <laughs> Wasn't that cumbersome or what? So, <laughs> you, you committed, though. That, that I <laughs> admire that quite a bit. You know, rule number one of holes is when you're in one, stop digging. When I'm in one, I get out my jackhammer. 
Well, I was really if admiring... If I'm going to die in this hole, it's going to be the world's <laughs> deepest hole. I swear. Well, I thought we did that thing like the Koya Scotsi uh, episode where I was talking about the, the second and third Matrix film. And oh, yeah. Like, what... You, you've seen, seen the Koi Kata. Kata. <laughs> <laughs> well, because and then we spent so long talking about indie as a trilogy without referring to the film that no one should refer to because it's I, right. No, no joke. I really, honestly, I swear. When I bought my my Steelbook box set of Blu-rays, I thought I had too many discs because <laughs> it had five discs, the four films and special features, and I was like, did I get? Are there two special features discs in here? What the? Because something the Star Wars DVD set of the original trilogy did when they brought those out on DVD is it has two special features discs because one of them is almost completely taken up by a documentary. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking, oh, maybe still Indiana Jones, right? I went one, two, three. I counted like six times. I sit on my couch. One, two, five. Five discs. Huh. So I went to the last disc and it was. Just said special features. And it says special features too. It's special features. Special features. Did they put something in the front? First disc. Nope. Uh, Raiders. Second disc. Temple. Third. And I got to the fourth and went, oh! But I really, honest to God, forgot that film existed. I know that's the trendy joke to, oh, what film? I, but yeah, I really swear that's to you. Amazing. I was so confused when I opened that up. What a forgettable film. Oh. The, but, the thing that makes me angry about it, though, is I feel like I, I don't hate it for the same this reasons. We're doing this, this episode. No, this <laughs> episode, you're right, you're we're right. doing let's, the fourth indie thing. No, let's save it. Let's save it. That should be that should be a special episode where we talk about why is this a sequel? Why did they do? Why that? does yeah. this exist? Like, who we'll thought this was a good idea? Certain so films. it would be King of the Crystal Skull. It'd be Die Hard Five. It'd be uh, Alien Four or Three and Four mm. or whatever. It'll be. Uh, you're gonna make me say it, aren't you? Yes. you know, neither of you can read my mind. Oh, it'll be Airbender. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> oh. These won't be films that we watch again. We will no, just we yeah. won't even bother. We'll just <laughs> we'll yell read about the them IMDb for a while. blurb and then we'll, yeah. we'll drink. <laughs> we'll drink. We'll drink and yell. <laughs> I didn't. I don't mean to derail you, Tim. I mean, would you rather oh, no. save that? No, no, no just, yeah, no, I, I, we don't have to get into that. <laughs> Let's end on a good note. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, Tim. In you know, sticking with you, you will be picking our next film. Yes, yes, you'll be picking so. for episode six, and that will bring us to the conclusion of our second cycle. Oh snap! <laughs> so after that, we'll have another recap. Don't worry, that will release midway between. Yep. You know, at the two week mark, so we won't have you won't have to wait extra long for episode seven in the beginning of the new cycle. But uh, what will you be bringing to us in episode six, Tim? This episode six, we're going to be watching Pi, uh, Darren Aronofsky's Pi, 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 or P. Or P. P. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> not, yeah, not not like as in piece of pie. Um, <laughs> like the number pie. Right, yes. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, it's Darren Aronofsky's uh, first film. At least as far as, I mean, I'm sure he's done other films, but that's sort of the, the first. Feature length. Yeah. And, and you know, um, more people are probably familiar with him for, you know, Requiem for a Dream was his first more mainstream film that I feel like a lot more people knew about. Um, he did uh, Noah. Uh, more recently, he's doing the film Mother with uh, uh, Jennifer Lawrence. Um, uh, is that actually sorry, Mother? Because it has an exclamation point after it. Is that out yet or not? <laughs> Maybe I've I, seen a lot of trailers for it, so it's 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 either out or film? coming out. Looks it or like you know really intense suspense. Because well, it was Mama 
Which is a horror film. Yeah. It no, it's it's, it's mother. It's mother. Yeah. So anyway, this is sort of his first film. Again, as I mentioned earlier, when I was at Blockbuster, this was sort of like, you know, a lot of these yes. filmmakers were on the rise and becoming more popular. So Requiem for, the, for a Dream had come out around the same time as Christopher Nolan's Memento. And then those of us who kind of you know jumped onto these filmmakers said, "Oh, what did they do before this?" And um, uh, you know, with Darren Aronofsky, it was Pi was his film sort of before that, where it was like, "Oh, okay, like this is really cool." So it's 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 in black and white, and it's about this mathematician who's obsessed with uh, with Pi, and but also with with other stuff too. It's not just about Pi. Like there's a more involved story that goes on, and um, I won't go too much into detail. But um, but it, it is interesting, I promise. And and what's really cool is the math isn't dealt with in such a way that you have to be a mathematician. It's kind of dealt with as this concept where they kind of throw out a few interesting tidbits. And you're like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And then they kind of move on, you know, with the story. Um, but it's interesting, too, and those of you who are familiar with Darren Aronofsky's stuff, you'll get to see some of the things that, you know, this is where they kind of were born, some of his little, uh, you know, cinematic, you know, tricks. Like, there's one where they'll show uh, a lot of, uh, you know, very, like, these close-up scenes very quick back-to-back, and they'll do that a bunch of times. Like, it happens in Requiem. Every time they take drugs, you'll get this, like, really quick shot of, like, okay, here's the heroin and the spoon boiling, and then, the, okay, suck it up in the syringe, and then the eyes dilate, and, you know, like, this is this is supposed to show this quick montage of, like, okay, this is them getting high, and then, boom, now they're high. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, started a lot of that here in this film. Anyway, yeah, that's what we're doing next time. All right. Great. Sounds like fun. I don't so, know about that, but it's a good film. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't I don't know if I'd call it fun. Nah, but the but experience will be yeah. fun watching <laughs> it with you guys talking about it. Alright, well that's uh so Tim, you're bringing us another Is Pi a little artsy a little bit? Oh yeah. yeah. Okay, so you're the artsy film guy. I'm the Japanese film guy. Joel's the only one who's actually brought us any variety. But, uh, <laughs> I just it brought uh, weird franchise things. Yeah, that I'll, yeah. You're the I'll franchise be, guy. I'll be shattering that in my next cycle. Okay. As, as we've discussed, oh, I'm definitely picking something non-Japanese <laughs> next time through. <laughs> so we'll see. But for the moment, Tim will remain the artsy fartsy one. Uh, well, yes, that was. I think our longest episode yet. But oh, yeah, easily. It didn't, it didn't feel like it Not recording. It was a lot of fun. Thank you all so very much for joining us. We hope you'll continue to find cinematic joy and friends to share it with. And we hope to... Uh, I was going to say hope to see you, but we don't see anybody. <laughs> hope you'll join us again next month for Pi. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm. Have a good night. Bye. Good night. Mumble comes to you from nerdsthatgeek.com. Visit nerdsthatgeek.com for all things Movie Mumble. Movie Mumble is hosted by Scott Murray, Joel Lewis, Tim Gerard, and Zeke Perez. The Movie Mumble theme song and all its variations were composed by Tim Gerard. The situational recommendation theme was composed by Joel Lewis, Scott Murray, and Tim Gerard, reluctantly. This episode of the Movie Mumble podcast was edited by Joel Lewis.